As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. But I think that you actually get it, you know? It's half tongue in cheek, the way you, yeah. you call it. And you don't call it theory of everything, yes. right? You call it theories of everything. So, which kind of suggests that it's not as simple as one might think. Edward Frankel is a prominent figure in the mathematical community. In fact, he was a professor at Harvard at 21, which is unparalleled. He's known for his work on the Langlands program, which is a blueprint aiming to bridge seemingly unrelated areas of math. A key aspect of Frankel's contributions lie in his investigations of Hitchin moduli spaces and Kac-Moody algebras, but what are they? Hitchin moduli spaces generalize certain types of differential equations, specifically ones related to something called connections on vector bundles over Riemann surfaces. These are akin to trying to categorize different shapes based on how many corners they have. Technically, these are called invariants. On the other hand, Kac-Moody algebras are infinite dimensional algebras, which are usually introduced as extensions of other familiar structures in math. In fact, there's even a question posed by Richard Borchards, a field medalist, who took the Kac-Moody concept and put it on steroids with something called vertex operator algebras, posing a question to Edward. Also, to be clear, certain representations of those Kac-Moody algebras are realized as vector operator algebras. VOAs aren't an extension of Kac-Moody. As usual, timestamps to everything mentioned are in the description, as well as links to everything mentioned are in the description. You can even skip this intro if you like. More important than the math, this podcast delves into Edward's personal reflections. Edward touches on what it means to reconnect with yourself, and he does so while confronting vast topics like infinity, death, and childhood trauma. My name is Kurt J. Mungle, and on this channel, I use my background in mathematical physics to analyze various theories of everything, from Wolfram's to string theory. We even explore consciousness and AI. As an aside, though this is an important theme in this conversation, is a theme that I resonate with from The Lord of the Rings, which is the story where Frodo gets stabbed by a special blade early on in the book, and then toward the end of the book, while everyone else is happy and the problems are resolved, including with Frodo. He succeeded in what he was attempting to do. The scar never heals. The wound still hurts him years and years later. And the lesson or the symbolism is that there are some things that can happen to you that don't go away. There are some wounds that while on the surface they heal, they shape you. That's always touched me. That touches me more than any other aspect of Lord of the Rings. And it's something that comes up in this conversation. Enjoy this revelatory podcast, this intimate podcast 
with professor of mathematics at Berkeley, Edward Frankel, one of my favorite podcasts. Welcome, Professor Frankel. Thank you. I've been very much looking forward to this conversation for weeks and weeks. So mm. it's an honor. I'm happy. I'm privileged. Thank you for coming on. Well, it's my pleasure. It's uh, great to be here uh, on, on uh, being interviewed by you, Kurt. Uh, you know, I have watched some of the videos on your channel and uh, found them inspiring and fascinating. So I'm, I'm glad to, to join the family. <laughs> Even that's an honor that you've watched, that you've heard of the channel, let alone watched some of them. What are you up to these days and what excites you about it? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> well, um, well, I'm a mathematician and, um, and the Berkeley professor. And um, so my, I feel like my day job, in other words, something that has been um, the constant throughout my life is my research. Uh, teaching too, but research uh, is something that I have really devoted, uh, I suppose, most of my energy in, you know, in my adult life. So my research is on a subject which is called the Langlands program. It's named after mathematician Robert Langlands, who uh, is a professor emeritus now at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where, you know, I always like to mention that he used to occupy the office that was formerly Albert Einstein's office mm. at the Institute. So in the uh, late 1960s, uh, Langlands came up with a bunch of conjectures and ideas, which became known as Langlands program. And what this is, is uh, what it was originally <clears throat> was trying to connect uh, seemingly unrelated questions in different parts of mathematics, specifically in number theory on one side and harmonic analysis on the other side. And I can talk more about this if you like later, I can explain more detail. But just, just to set the stage, so this is something that excited mathematicians for several generations, more than 50 years, obviously. And uh, in, the, in the 1980s, um, a new sort of, um, a new domain in the language program emerged, which has to do with things that are connect, connected not to so much to number theory, but to geometry. Uh, and eventually quantum physics, and it has to do with what's called Riemann surfaces, such as a sphere or the surface of a donut, uh, and so on, so-called Riemann surfaces. And so my research has been on this subject for many years, but uh, there was something interesting about it that distinguished it from the original formulation of the language program. In the language program, it's about, it's about functions and operators acting on functions. It's actually you know, we can think about it in terms of quantum mechanics. There's a Hilbert space and there is some commuting operators acting in a Hilbert space. And we want to diagonalize them. We want to find their eigenvectors and eigenvalues. That's the original formulation. But in the geometric formulation, uh, people couldn't find it initially, a framework like that. So instead, what was proposed was that it should be about this weird esoteric objects called sheaves. And so... It became known as a geometric language correspondence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in the last five years or so, with my two colleagues, uh, Pavel Ettingov and David Kashdan, uh, we were able to find this new formulation for in the geometric setting, in the setting of Riemann surfaces, where, in fact, we do have a Hilbert space and we do have commuting operators, and we can pose the question of the finding the eigenvectors and eigenvalues. And so it's kind of a new flavor of the language program. So something that really excited me for the last five years 
you know, it's so interesting because for me, it's been like my research has been, it's not been like a linear path in some sense. So like for a long time, it was, you know, like when you're young and ambitious, you want to be the best that you can be. And it's all about achieving and kind of like finding your place in the community and so on. So, and so then that was kind of a period of rapid growth. And then, then at some point I kind of realized, I started asking myself, why am I doing this? You know, so what's, am I doing it because I want to achieve something, um, recognition or awards, mm-hmm. or am I doing it really because I love it? You see, and it's not so easy in a later point in life to, to regain that, you know? And so there was kind of a period where I suppose I, I was a little jaded you know, maybe about 10 years ago. Well, conveniently around that time, I wrote my book, Love and Math. And so I was in, in high demand for public speaking and so on. So it's kind of like it worked out actually in a way that gave me a little more time to reflect. And so interestingly enough, um, I did I did remember that excitement that I had um, as, a, as, a young, as a student, you know, teenagers in, in my early 20s, where I literally, you know, went to sleep um, to fall, I want to fall asleep faster so I could wake up in the morning and resume my, you know, my inquiry, my, you know, asking those questions and working yeah. on this. And so I kind of regained, I kind of remember this. It was so exciting, you know. So I'm just kind of trying to give us a, a sense where I am. Um, this project, especially, which, like I said, I've been working on for about about five years now. And it still uh, it still excites me, and it's still something that I feel that there are so many interesting questions there that um, you know that uh, draw my attention. This appetite that you have to be number one, or that you used to have when you were in your younger years, the striving. You said that you started to question it and think, okay, well, what am I truly motivated by? That's right. Versus what do I want other people to recognize me for? When did you start to question that? You mentioned ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, maybe t- about about ten about ten years. Ago. Well, about ten years ago. Well, you know, uh, after so I already after yeah, the book gave me a certain framework. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> I read this book cover to cover, and when I say cover to cover, I mean including the index and oh. the glossary. <laughs> yeah, so I love this book. Oh, thank you, thank you, Kurt. Thank you, I appreciate it. The book is called Love and Math, and it'll be in the description. It's on screen right now if you're watching this on video. The first half is like an ode to mathematics in general. This is my perspective, so you have your own. Mm -hmm. And then the last half is some... I'm surprised if anyone who isn't a mathematician can keep up with the last half. But it's something that, for me, who is extremely interested in math, was extremely interested in. Especially love the dictionaries. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, are like translation dictionaries. Mathematicians call them dictionaries, but they're more like... Translation dictionaries or yeah. the sources because yeah. you can substitute the words. Right. Whereas a dictionary right. is like a word and then you have a longer word that defines it. Whereas a translation right. dictionary is the Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone, yes. And I do, I do, I do frame it as a Rosetta Stone, right? And it's, it is about the language program. It's exactly the subject that I, I was just, you know, I gave a brief outline of just now. I would love to talk to you about the process of writing this book later on this interview as well, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure, sure, of course. But anyway, we're getting to you questioning your own motivations, how that came about, how that unfolded, and where that led you now. Yes, so, you know, it's so interesting. Well, you're an artist, so you know how it works. It's 
the results, when you actually dedicate yourself to an artistic project, you cannot know what will come out. And, of course, a true dedication means that you, you, it's sincere. It's a sincere effort. You want to connect your audience, right? So I wanted to connect to my audience. I wanted them to be excited about the subject. So what the primary motivation for writing Love and Math for me was that I, th- I thought that nobody knows what mathematics is really about, apart from a very small elite, a very small group of people, professional mathematicians like myself. And, the, and I opened the book with this analogy of saying, imagine you had an art class in which they only taught you how to paint fences and walls and never taught you uh, the paintings of the great masters, never showed them to you, never even told you that they existed, never told you that there were museums where you could go and look at them. What would you think of art? The mm-hmm. art, the way mm-hmm. art is presented to you is just painting fences and walls and then watching paint dry. So, of course, you years later, you'll say, art is not for me, okay? So, it's not something I find interesting. Yeah, maybe there are these weird people who like painting fences and walls, but if I ever need that, I will just hire someone to do it. And, th- and that's it. So, then they completely miss what this is all about. In both cases, of course, paint is involved, but in very different ways. And so, my, my, I felt my job was to try to convey that what is it about? What are these paintings? What are the Picassos of mathematics? You know, and and cutting through the, you know, obviously if you have to, if you are a math major, you take courses and it takes a long time. But I was, I wanted to address the general audience people who don't have time to go and and take classes and 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 learn the basics. And I wanted to cut through those uh, sort of the technical stuff and just get to the sense, give a sense of what is like. What are the objects, for instance, we're talking about? We're not talking about numbers necessarily yes. right we're not talking about quadratic equations we're not talking about euclidean geometry uh-huh. all the subjects that we are that's a very limited part of mathematics that we are yet exposed we talk about symmetry groups we go talk about braid groups we talk about even surfaces we we talk about hilbert spaces you know this kind of stuff infinite dimensional stuff what is this like what is it also what is it like to to do it what is it like why did i get excited about it so i wanted to couple it with a human story Okay, so that's the initial motivation. In other words, I set out to write this book to teach something, to teach the world something, to connect to my readers, to let them experience something which perhaps they haven't had a chance to experience yet. But in a weird way, what what art does is if you're successful in connecting to your audience, guess what? You will receive feedback too from the book. It's a two-way street. This is what's amazing thing about art. With mathematics, by the way, not quite so because we operate in such within such you know rigid framework very rigorous rules and so on so it's not as uh it is a passionate pursuit but i discovered that you know um writing a book or earlier i had a chance to be involved in filmmaking and now recently i started you know recording my a dj sets electronic music ah. i discovered that i discovered that this is a totally different game and because not only you have a chance to to give something to your audience but also you receive something if you are sincere if you really put if you really put your heart to it and so there is, on, in that sense the book was a, a revelation for me i learned so many things about it it catalyzed a process of self inquiry you could say where I start questioning things about myself, about my life, about my outlook in in a very strange way. Like it wasn't programmed in some sense. It was just like, 
happening, you know, and it brought me to, in contact with people who helped me to accelerate that process. And one of the questions, like, you know, as, as I mentioned, one of the questions was indeed, wh what is this all about? Why am I doing this? You know, is it real? I, by that time, I understood that it's not real if it is just driven by ambition mm -hmm. uh, and, and the desire to be recognized and rewarded. It's not real. It may still be have a real undercurrent to it, but it's not fully real. And the sooner one realizes that, the better. Um, you know, so that was that. That's how I came to that question. But then there were other things too. I I realized to what extent we are driven by our emotions. You know that um, scientists would like to pretend that we are these sterile beings and we are just analyzing the so-called objective reality, but nothing to do with me. There is this electrons are weird, but not me. It has nothing to do with my life. You know, so I suddenly realized how much I'm driven by this undercurrent of emotions and unconsciously unaware of all those weird processes that are happening in my psyche. And that's when that brought me to reading a lot of interesting stuff. Like Carl Jung is one of my teachers. I've read a lot of Carl Jung and Marie-Louise Van Franz, one of his students. Because, you know, I, I love both Jung and Van Franz. And they, to me, they, it's like a source, endless source of inspiration and, and, and insight. And so then I connected, I started studying Eastern philosophy, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And so that's, that's what the book catalyzed in me, my own, so to speak, you know, so my, yeah. it, it kind of ricochets, you know, into, onto ourselves as authors. And it's a gift. It's a gift. I'd like to add to that. So you mentioned that art is a bit different than math because there's more, at least if it's true art, there's an aspect of receiving. But immediate, immediate respect. Yeah, immediate. It, it's like a wave, you know, like it's a, it's a frequent, different frequency. So yes, of course, with Matt, you also receive eventually. And Alessandro Rothendieck, my hero, my hero. And uh, he he obviously uh, was uh, one of the, revol was a revolutionary mathematician of the second half of the 20th century. And then he had, a, he had an awakening, uh, one could, uh, one could say in a kind of traditional Eastern, Eastern, Eastern philosophy sense. Um, awakening where he realized he mm, was brought that some questions of human existence and suffering were really hit him hard and brought you know were brought into his attention and you could say that that's because he went very deep into mathematics so it's another portal too but I feel it, it's like it takes longer in some sense it's like a wave which is much longer wave whereas the Art is fluctuates much faster, and, and and so response time is much faster also. Carl Jung said that great art is one where you don't know what you're creating when you go into it, and then by the end of it, you learn something. Well, you mentioned learn something about yourself, but it could yeah. be learn something about almost anything. So right. you shouldn't, if you were to know what you're doing when you start, then he called it propaganda, because you're trying to convince people of something. Yeah, it's not love. It, it's not you're not conveying love. You're conveying power. And so, right? And so Jung is famous for saying also that where, where love ends, the power begins. And conversely, it's which I, fi I find a very uh, a good, you know, way to look at things. Uh, in other words, the impact is real when it is, comes from the place of love. It can, also be, it can also be felt when it comes from power, but we know what the results are eventually. And so... A historical prelude to the... Langland's program is the vile conjectures. 
which he infamously came up with while he was in jail. So can you please talk about that? Oh, well, Langlands would disagree with that because Langlands was not, he was not particularly so. So first of all, we pronounce his way, way, we say way, Andre way, because there is also Hill Herman Wilde to make things even uh, more confusing, uh-huh. right? So there are two great mathematicians who have very similar names. And then there was also Andre Wilde. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so for people like myself who read it, yeah. I was confused for the longest time between Andre Weil or Andre Weil and Andrew Weil. So who comes up? Who comes up with this? With and this? also, I still don't know how to pronounce Hecke operators or Heck operators or, or Majorana yeah. particles. I I don't know because I just read them. I think for one year I called it Li Li algebras instead Lie of Li algebras. algebras. That's right. That's right. Yes. So <laughs> who writes this script? Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know, but it's true that there are, there are three mathematicians with. Like exceedingly uh, similar names. Uh, there is Hermann Weil, who was a great German mathematician who worked at the Institute for Advanced Study, was one of the founding professors uh, or first professors there. He is the one who was famous and made famous contributions to study of groups and Lie groups specifically and quantum mechanics and so on. And also a very, very brilliant philosopher. Then there is Andre Vey, who's a French mathematician, also ended up working at the Institute for Advanced Study a little bit later. And he came up with this Vey conjectures. So his name is spelled W-E-I-L. And in French tradition, we pronounce it Vey. Oh, okay. So that's my mistake. Whereas Helen Weil, last name is spelled W-E-Y-L. And in the German tradition, we say Weil. I just assume everything is German. Right? So there is also Andrew Weils who proved Fermat's last theorem with Richard Taylor. So that's more more contemporary mathematician. So Andre Vey um, was a very brilliant uh, mathematician who came up with this Vey conjectures, one of the most important, most fascinating and original contributions. Um, he also was the one who... Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. 
The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Created this framework, came up with this framework of a Rosetta Stone of mathematics where number theory and geometry were connected in a particular way, which actually is a good, gives a good context for understanding the language program. But I w- it, w- it would not be nece- would not necessarily be correct to say that Langlands was motivated by the very conjectures. They, they're kind of a little bit apart from each other. So Langlands was form- was was motivated by other other issues. Um, um, we can talk about this, but it's maybe yeah. a little bit later. So the, so but your your question was more about Andre Vey or more about Langlands. Well, the way that I understand it is that even if Langlands didn't see it when he was coming up with his program as an extension of the whale, sorry, whale, whale. How do I pronounce it? Way, way, way. Way. Like way, like way. No way. The way, the way. Okay, this is the way. All right. Yeah, that's right. This is the way. So the way conjectures that it's seen now. And I think even in your book, you had on the x-axis, like in this matrix, this translation dictionary, the way conjectures. But then if you go downward on one of them, you have the Langlands program. So in a sense, the way conjectures are more general, more encompassing. Well, but it's not exactly so. There is way conjectures, which is a very specific technical term for some specific statements. But uh, way conjectures, but way conjectures were out an outcome of a certain overarching framework that Andre Way came came up with. In in you're right. He wrote that letter in 1940 to his sister Simone Way, who was a famous philosopher mm-hmm. and humanist. Uh, I'm trying to explain his ideas, and that's where he outlined this picture of Rosetta Stone, so to speak. The vague conjectures were an outcome for him from that conceptual understanding of how things fit in mathematics. That he was able to argue by analogy. So you have Riemann hypothesis in number theory, and because he had this framework that where he could move things from number theory to other domains, then he said, what, what would Riemann hypothesis look like in this domain? And it came up with vague conjectures, more or less. Right? So what, what matters here, if we talk about the Langlands program, is not vague conjectures themselves, which is a very particular application of that general um, overarching framework. But the framework itself, the framework itself helps you see how the Langlands program can play out in different domains. That's, what, that's the point I was trying to make in my book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And way... Andre Way, right. Yeah, Andre, Andre Way, Way also, he gave an analogy of 
curves, points, and surfaces as being different avatars of Vishnu. So can you please oh, yes. tell the audience about that as well? Oh, yes. So this is very interesting. So uh, Andrivei was very attuned to the Eastern tradition, and he actually visited India um, and um, I think lectured at the Tata Institute Fundamental Science in Bombay, Mumbai. And so in, uh, in his letter to his sister, which was written in 1940, he talks about this, this, how mathematicians um, perceive uh, these analogies. And so it's kind of a, a very interesting, um, I don't know if I should actually, I have, my, I have my book here, so I don't know if I could, if I should actually quote, uh, this quote is here somewhere. And uh, he, he mentions Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavad Gita, which is a kind of a sacred text of uh, Hinduism. So, and he says, when you get an insight, it's just kind of an inkling of, a, of an idea, as opposed yeah. to when it's already understood. He talks about this dialectics of, of the experience of passing from that moment of recognition, but you're not sure yet. You just start seeing the outline, and then when it's actually already done, and it's something very interesting because, like, you fall like fall in love, kind of, you know, kind of like. So you wouldn't, you would prob- most people probably would least expect a mathematician to be so poetic about it, about the, the about the nature of discovery in mathematics. But he says, so what happened? This is a translation into English. So when what happens when this inkling of an analogy between two theories turned into concrete knowledge. He says, gone are the two theories, gone their troubles and, and delicious, delicious reflections in one another, their furtive caresses, their inexplicable quarrels. Alas, we have but one theory now whose majestic beauty can no longer excite us. So the excitement comes from that moment, the recognition, he's basically saying. Nothing is more fertile than this illicit liaison. Nothing gives more pleasure to the connoisseur. This initial moment of discovery, this initial moment of insight. And he says, the pleasure comes from the illusion and the, and the, and the kindling of the senses. Once the illusion disappears and knowledge is acquired, we attain indifference. In the Bhagavad Gita, there are some, there are some lucid verses to this effect. And then he goes, but let's go back to the algebraic function. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, in other words, there is this depth of understanding. So, mathematics does give one this vantage point, I suppose, which is very poetic, and one could say romantic. And uh, I can, I can, I can feel that viscerally what he's talking about because you know, um, coming up with a discovery. In mathematics, it does feel like that. But so does everything else. Fall in love is kind of like this. Although one could say it's not necessarily that you kind of attain indifference of once it's settled, it settles. The idea is that because the diff, that's the difference between you know human relationship, which is which is living, which can live and evolve and transform each, itself and reinvent itself forever or for a long time. In mathematics, once the theory is completed in some sense. It's already fixed. It doesn't grow. It can grow then the next level and so on, but there is this, indeed there is a sense of indifference. 
So that's kind of connected to what I was talking about, the, the difference between art and mathematics. In, in art, in some sense, there is a mo- more of a living, it's more of a living thing. Yes, yes. Something that's popular nowadays is to say that there is no theory of everything. And in part, they'll quote Feynman and say, well, it's supposed to be like an onion. Even though onions are finite, they have like 10 to 20 layers. So that's actually, it's a poor analogy because we've revolutionized physics maybe 10 to 20 times in different ways. So we should be at the core. But also that there's something romantic about it, about there not being a theory of everything. Because if there was, then we think the ultimate questions are done. But the theory of everything in physics has a certain meaning of like reconciling dynamic space-time with quantum theory. And so that's not exactly like the answers to everything, quote-unquote. But even if there was, it could be that the answer to everything, quote-unquote, is something that's animated. So it could be something like at the bottom of, I know this is extremely poetic to say, but it could be like the theory of everything is to live lovingly. In which case, it's not like an apprehensible, timeless, dead fact, like Mm -hmm. certain theorems are. But rather something to, rather a process rather than a state. I agree. That's a process. It's a process. It's a process. It's a, the, the connotation I think most people have of theory of everything uh, is that it's, a, it's something static that is done, and and then we have this no that this knowledge which somehow will cover everything, and that is kind of very counterproductive in my view, and even I would say dangerous, and has unfortunately impeded progress and caused a lot of suffering. Uh, to scientists, but not only because it's the mindset. If we, because today people trust scientists to be the forward looking and kind of like more advanced, the way they used to look up to theologians or priests or poets or artists. Now, for better or for worse, it's the scientists who are the priests, so to speak, in this era. And so if we are confused about this, if we entertain this. Um, ideas that they propagate to a general culture. And this is what happened in some sense. This idea mm-hmm. of insatiable, in my view, this insatiable appetite for trying to explain everything with the knowledge I have right now. It's, if you think about it, this is absurd. And all the history of humanity shows that it's absurd. And yet the impulse is so strong. And I'm not going to say it's those other people have to, it's me. I have been like this all my life, up until maybe maybe very recently. So I know exactly how tempting this is. I also know how how counterproductive it is and how much suffering comes from it. So like, you know, it's entertaining. It's kind of fun to engage in this activity, but um, I think it's a it's a very important. And, and I'm glad you're. I'm, I'm speaking about this on the podcast, which is called Theories of Everything. It's a bit paradoxical. But I think that you actually get it, kind of. You know, it's kind of half tongue-in-cheek, the way you, yeah. you call it. And you don't call it theory of everything, yes. right? You call it theories of everything. So it's not as simple as one might, might, one might think. That's the observant mathematician in you. <laughs> that's, why, that's why they pay me the big bucks, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the drive to come up with a theory of everything isn't 
even though people will say, well, I care about humanity and I want to solve global problems. I don't think it's that. I think it's the desire to be crowned the title of the next Einstein. Yeah, yeah. So it's ego, ego driven, ego driven. So we can agree on that. Yeah, of course. To me, of course. that means that you're not the next Einstein because Einstein never cared about being the next Einstein because there was none. <laughs> and also something I think about when people say so-and-so is the next Einstein, we generally think of it in terms of, okay, are they creating something that's a paradigm shift in physics or math? But yeah. it's unclear to me if Einstein was to be born today, would he be doing physics and math? So he was a creative, tuneful, yeah. poetic, romantic person. Maybe he would. Maybe the next Einstein is Christopher Nolan. Also, he played. Also, he played violin. He played violin. Yes. Yeah. So literally, maybe tuneful. he would be a violinist. Yeah, Yo Yo Ma. Maybe Yo Yo Ma is the next Einstein. That's a good point. The term theory of everything. It's, let's unpack this because I think a, you've tongue-in-cheek called the Langlois program a grand unified theory, which some people then take to say it's a theory of everything, of math. Of mathematics, yes, because, you know, I was like, how come physicists always talk about grand unified theories? This, I literally, I gave a colloquium in Princeton, and that's when I first came up with this. It was kind of like on the spur of a moment. I was like, how come physicists always always talk about grand unified theories, but we mathematicians don't? And actually, Langlois was sitting in the audience. Mm -hmm. And I said... Well, guess what? I would like I would like to call the Langlois program the Grand Unified Theory of Mathematics, and they're all laughing because, of course, it, it doesn't make sense because mathematics is just so diverse. It cannot have a, nobody wants to have a theory of everything. And then I said, well, maybe it doesn't describe everything, but at least it describes something. So it's kind of a little, you know, like. <laughs> so that's how it, it came about. Well, in a sense, math already has a theory of everything. What I mean by that is, it's the axioms. So it's just, it's not interesting to anyone. Why I say that is that in physics... But axioms, but axioms. Now you're trading on a very uh, treacherous... Uh, I'll, I'll explain. In other words, the toe in physics is what are all those principles from which all observations slash theories are emergent slash effective. That is what we measure in the lab are just corollaries of these axioms. If we knew the axioms, like the drive for a theory of everything in physics is what is the axioms of nature? And so in math, I know that there's some controversies. to. But work. in math, we don't know what the axioms are either. That's the whole point. That's the whole point, which is lost usually. People don't realize because most people think mathematics is written in stone. So, of course, it's so, it's so predetermined. No, it's not. It is a very important issue. You know, the way I like to talk about it is that, you know, there is an observer problem in mathematics, just like, quote, unquote, or measurement problem in mathematics, just like in, phys in quantum physics, where the observer is involved in quantum physics. We know that from experiments. Uh, in mathematics, it is much less, much uh, easier to miss. And where it comes is, there are several places where it comes, but one of the most essential ones is who chooses the axioms. There isn't, there isn't, there isn't one axiomatic system, which is, which is God-given. And even... Um, uh, great math logicians like Kurt Gödel, for example, ap apparently he did believe that there is a kind of ultimate correct system. And then he thought that his job as a mathematician was to find it. In other words, it is somewhere there in some platonic world and, and you have to go and find it. But it's not obvious at, at all which one it is. So it, it's just the way you frame the search for it. In other words, you may think that there is one special one, but you don't know what it is, and you devote, dedicate your life to finding it. Another, an alternative position is plurality, kind of multiverse of axioms. So there are various axiomatic systems. They lead you to different mathematics. 
And it's very interesting to analyze what are the differences, which is more fruitful, which is less fruitful. So then you can say, okay, well, there must be some objective criteria as to which uh, system of axioms is better. And the weird thing is that there isn't. Even consistency mm-hmm. cannot serve as a criterion because the second incompleteness theorem of Kurt Gödel shows that a formal system, formal system that's kind of a, 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 a um, assemblage of all the statements that you can get out of a particular system of axioms, a formal system cannot prove its own consistency. You have to step out of it. You have to step out of it. You have to add, adjoin some other axioms to be able to speak about consistency. Consistency means that it's useful. Um, You can't prove everything. And consistency means that every statement can be derived. So it it derives contradictions. It can derive statement A and then it's negation. And if that's the case, then it's true for every other statement. So it means that it proves everything. So then it's it's useless. Yeah, you actually don't want to be able to prove everything because then it's trivial. That's right. You have to prove only some select statements. And that is a property of a formal system is called consistency. And the point is that the system cannot prove its own consistency. So then how you cannot be sure even that it's consistent. You have to take it on faith. And that's where the observer comes. So then how, do, how does Kurt Gödel, for instance, how would he decide which system is the God-given one? Because he did believe, apparently, that there was a correct one that you, you had to find. And obviously... You do it on other principles, like aesthetic principles, this principle of beauty, principles of it being concise, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But that's where you, as a subject, as a first person, your first person perspective becomes imprinted on on this, because there isn't an objective criterion ultimately. There isn't. So the other possibility, which is resonates with me, is this idea. Um, um, which is uh, there is a philosopher Penelope Muddy who has written about this, and I really like the way she frames it. It's mathematical practice. The system is the better system is the one which is more fruitful, which allows you to prove more things. And this is some, but see, it's beautiful because it means. But who decides? It's us, the living mathematicians today. We decide because we're practicing mathematicians. We're applying those axioms in in our practical work. And then it becomes a, a marketplace a place of axioms, so a system of axioms, if you will. They compete with each other as different stories, so to speak. And we choose the ones which are more fruitful, which give us more diverse, more beautiful mathematics. You know, So in, in other words, we're deciding it right now, not referring to authority of Pythagoras or Kurt Gödel or, or Bertrand Russell or some such you know, great individual. But it's up to us. It's a li- that's where mathematics becomes a living process. So in that sense, one has to be careful to say that um, whether mathematics is, is uh, based on some unassailable foundation. It's not. If you look more closely, it's actually very similar to other subjects of human endeavor or other parts of science, for instance, like physics and so on. And I agree with you that in a way... You almost you could say that the job of a physicist is to try to find the axioms of the physical world yes. of, of this universe. So we don't see the laws themselves; we observe the ramifications, or at least some, or at least some of them, right? So then, but in mathematics, actually, it's the same, but it's much more difficult to notice it if you, unless you actually are a practicing mathematician. Because hear that sound. 
That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. The, the way my class is perceived by, by the general public is that it is something where, where nothing ever changes. And, and, and the foundation well, is also perceived by many mathematicians. And actually, I personally have not really thought about it deeply until recently. You know, because you you do you 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 do, and and I think it's very common. You know, in general, that you you find something that interests you. Like for me, language program. You can work on language program without questioning the foundations. Yeah. The reason I question the foundation is because of my interest in philosophy, perhaps it's because of public public speaking, uh, kind of doing interviews like uh, conversations like this, where yeah. these kind of questions would come up and I would really be curious. So I I'm, I'm really interested in the in those philosophical underpinnings of mathematics. But a lot of people, as you know, they actually claim that philosophy is completely useless for science. <laughs> We shall not. We shall not name any names, right? Yes, yes, yes. I will put an image on screen. <laughs> I disagree. I disagree yeah. violently with this position. I think it's very limiting, and I think there are probably some parts of science where you know you can get by. But I think we all benefit from opening our horizon and from being interested in the foundations of what we are doing. This is called self-awareness, right? And what are you doing? So, in other words. The public has the perception that there's the practical aspect of science, so STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and the practical side are the first three yes. letters, the science, the technology, the engineering. And physics is seen as a purer form of engineering. And then the most purest form of physics or the purest form of science is math, and that's something that's extremely objective. But you're saying, well, in order for us to establish something mathematically, we have to agree on the axioms. When That's we right. do so, we generally do so with practical concerns, like empiricism. And so there's something that's about... Or, or, or you're driven by your Platon. If you are a Platonist, which means that you believe that mathematical ideas exist in this, in this ideal domain, this Platonic world, which is outside of space and time, and so on, which I respect this position. And I actually, uh, uh, to some extent, adhere to this position uh, uh, when I was writing Love and Math. Uh, then also you have a, your own methodology. You're kind of, you're searching for uh the, the 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 correct one in that in that platonic realm which is also you know it's a, it's a methodology 
But there has to be some kind of methodology for you to, because there is no objective methodology. Even, even you cannot even re- even use consistency as as a tool because it cannot prove its own consistency. So you have to take it on faith. It's a very practical thing. For instance, you have the ZFC, the standard axiomatics of set theory. Set is a is the most fundamental notion in modern mathematics, introduced by German mathematician Georg Cantor, and it's a it's a, he co- it actually cannot be it's never been defined. Right, so this is already a place right. where a hall of mirrors, you know, we pretend that it is something that is 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 uh, concrete and definite, but in fact there is no definition of it. Uh, there are only circular definitions. Kantor uh, himself gave a very poetic definition. He said, "A set is a collection of many that think of thinks of itself as one." You see, so it's a poetic definition. Now, we, in other words, here's a notion which we accept on faith. Then you have this axiomatics, which was developed in the first half of the 20th century and has become sort of a staple. So you kind of, a lot of most mathematicians follow it, even if they're not aware. It's called ZFC. Uh, Z for Zermelo and one mathematician, F for Frankel, almost the same spelling as my name, mm-hmm. no connection, as far as I know. And, and C is the axiom of choice, so ZFC. Now, we do not know that it is consistent. We can prove its consistency from another system, which which a bigger system where you introduce additional axioms, but you don't know whether that system is consistent. And like this ad infinitum. So how can we then do mathematics? You ask, well, we have to, we accept it on faith. People don't talk about it. And most people, practicing mathematicians never actually thought about it deeply. But if you think about it, it's and it's all information is available. I'm not saying something that is not known. Everybody knows it. Uh, certainly, logicians know it, and uh, and the point is that we take it on faith that it is consistent. Because if you don't, then how can you do mathematics without assuming that it is consistent? You see. Yes. If it's not consistent, it means that you can prove anything by from these axioms, inc- inc- including contra- contradictory statements, mm-hmm. right? So. There is this element of faith, even in mathematics. There is an element of fiction. There is an element of story. And I think it's a very important observation because it points us, again, to the importance of the first-person perspective. Science of 19th century tried to expunge the first-person perspective, even earlier science. And the whole point of science was was to come up with this narrative that somehow there is a subjective reality and we are just detached observers. We are not participants in it. Science of 20th century, physics of 20th century put an end to this through quantum mechanics, through Einstein's relativity theory, where the observer is involved and cannot be separated from uh, what the observer is observing. But then you could say, well, well, at least mathematics is objective. And so my point is, it's not. It's more camouflage. It's better camouflage. Your current deliberation is that it's all subjective or it's an intermingling of subjective and objective? It's always intermingling, of course, because, but the point is that there is no objective core. There is no, there isn't isn't something that's a strong foundation. There is, you know, like people, somebody who is not a mathematician may think, obviously there are some axioms in mathematics which have existed forever and nobody questions them. That's not true. The simplest example of this is non-Euclidean geometry. Euclid actually was the first one who, to come up with a functional system of axioms, what we call formal system of Euclidean geometry. It's about 2,300 years ago. 
of course, building on earlier works by Pythag- Pythagoras and Pythagoreans, where he came up with a list of five axioms and tried to de- and derive hundreds of different statements in his book Elements, a series of books, uh, derived from those axioms. Now, the fifth, the first four axioms were kind of um, natural. The fifth axiom was about parallel lines. That if you have a line on the plane, so the Euclidean geometry, as I'm, I'm sure everybody knows, since this is actually one subject that is studied in school, yeah. is about the plane. Plane, plane means a tabletop extended to infinity in all directions, and on that plane we have points, we have lines, we have circles, we have triangles, and then they intersect, and there are all kinds of statements that you want to make. For instance, Pythagoras' theorem that you have a a right triangle and the side, the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of squares of two other sides. This is the type of statements that we're talking about, which you would like to deduce or derive from a small number of axioms. But then who, how do you choose these axioms? The first of all, you want them to be non-contradictory. That's consistency that I talked about. And, and yet you want them to be broad enough so that you can derive many interesting things, right? So he came up with these five axioms. And the fifth axiom was the one which kind of looked weird. And it stated that if you have a line on the plane and you have a point outside of this line, then there is a unique line passing through it, which is parallel to the original one. Parallel means that they never intersect. So there is, there is one and it's unique. And after that, for centuries, people try to derive this fifth axiom. It, they used to call it fifth postulate from the first four. And they, they've all failed. For about, two, for about 2,000 years, when several mathematicians around the same time said, what if we replace it with another axiom where either you say there are no such lines, in other words, every line that passes through this point intersects the original line, or you say that there are infinitely many lines, not one, which do not, which do not intersect. And this way you get what's called non-Euclidean geometry. Uh, the first example, now, when you say axioms, you, when you talk about Euclidean geometry, you have to make it very detached from reality. So uh, we have a model of this Euclidean geometry where we really think of lines and dots and, and yeah. circles and triangles. But when you formulate things in mathematics, in the formal system, it has to be completely detached from reality. It's all, all syntactic. It's just symbolic manipulation. So you don't necessarily have to refer to a particular model for it. So then you say, well, on, in my experience on the line on the plane, I can't imagine that the, every there's there no parallel line passing to another point. But you don't have to look on the plane; you can look on the sphere, and on the sphere, the role of lines is played by meridians, and every two meridians intersect. You see. So, in other words, the formal system doesn't care about how you want to model it. Formal system only cares about things like consistency, whether these axioms contradict each other or not. And it turns out that if you replace the fifth axiom of Euclid with another statement, it turns out that it's still, in this case, we can actually prove its consistency because it's kind of um, from without doing much. So it is actually independent from the other axioms, and you can actually replace it by its negation, and you'll still get a consistent system. And that system can be realized either on a sphere that's the kind of yes, yeah. spherical geometry where yeah. every two, instead of, but it's not a line, it's a meridian which plays the role of the line. So you, you, you take all the statements about lines in Euclid, but you replace lines by meridians, meridians meaning big circles on the, on the sphere. 
It doesn't mean this has to go through North and South Pole. Mm-hmm. You could have any any big circle is a lot is what plays the role of a line in spherical geometry. And if you replace the, the axiom in the opposite direction, you say that in, there are infinitely many lines which do not intersect. You get what's called hyperbolic geometry. So it's a geometry on hyper on a hyperboloid where the um, the the role of the of the lines is played by hyperbolas, and then you can see that there are infinitely many hyperbolas which do not intersect. Okay, so this is a good illustration of the fallacy of the idea that there is one axiomatic system which services all of mathematics, which is has been given to us somehow, like the way the, the tablets, you know, the, the, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. That's just not, that's just not the case at all. However, it doesn't mean that it's not a postmodernist position either that anything goes. This is what I also try to explain to my students always, because then the next temptation is to say, okay, it's all fiction. Yes, that's what it sounds like. Then what are we talking about? But the point is that there is practice. These axioms, they don't, nobody needs these axioms if you're not going to apply them to actually prove statements and make progress in mathematics. And different. And it's not true that all axiomatic systems are created equal. No, in some of them, you get a lot of interesting stuff done. And in some of them, it's somewhat not limiting. And a good example of this is whether you accept the existence of infinity, the existence of infinite sets, like the set of natural numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and so on, as a totality, not just infinity light, that for every number, there is a number greater by one. This is called potential infinity. But you, you accept absolute infinity, that there is such a thing as a collection of all natural numbers. This mm-hmm. is a very, it seems like a small thing, but actually leads to a lot of paradoxical statements like the famous Hilbert Hotel, you know, where you have infinitely many rooms and then you mm-hmm. can always accommodate more people because you could shift them all by one to the next room right, right, and then right. freeing up, freeing up. Then it was very paradoxical behavior. So now, what, what is the status of, of this statement of existence of absolute infinity? It's actually an axiom. It cannot be derived from anything. It is one of the axioms in ZFC, in this axiomatic system that I talked about, Zermelo-Frankel axiom of choice. And there are mathematicians which are, who are called finitists who refuse to accept this axiom. So they consider ZFC without the axiom of infinity. And then the race is on. Okay, so here, 99% of mathematicians who accept infinity and they work with this axiom, whether they're aware of it or not. Okay? And here is a small group of mathematicians who refuse to accept this axiom, and they work with ZFC minus infinity. This is very real. It's not. I'm not making this up. This is how. Yes, yes, yes. This is our current situation. Yeah, I've spoken to some people who dislike the axiom of infinity and the axiom of choice. Norman Weilberger and and sure and Dror Barnatin. Do you know Dror Barnatin? Dror, yeah, of course I know Dror. Okay, well, we'll speak about him afterward. But anyway, continue. Yeah, this is very interesting. So how do you decide? How do you decide which is correct and which is not? So my point is, this is a market of ideas. You know, this is a market of formal system, market of uh, formal systems. You show me what you can do with your formal system, and I'll show you what I can do with my formal system. People will look at this, and they will decide which way they want to go. For now, maybe somebody else will come up with a third system of axioms, which will be superior to both, and so on. I don't want to do it on ideological grounds. You see, and this is where a lot of people go astray today in today's science. They pretend that they are not ideological. They pretend that they're not driven by their metaphysical preferences. 
uh-huh. ontological preferences. For instance, that I like local determinism or I dislike local determinism. And then I am willing to sacrifice this and this and this for that particular thing, aspect of a theory. But it's not because it's my preference. It's just a better theory. No, it doesn't work this way. You have to detach yourself from your ideology if you want to do good science. In my, it's my opinion, okay? Mm-hmm. Which in this particular scenario that I'm talking about, and it's not a scenario, it's a reality of, of modern mathematics. You have a small number of people who refuse to take axiom of infinity. Now, my feeling is that there is something deep in their psychology which rebels against the idea of infinity. They believe it's not real. And they would like to do mathematics according to this ideology. Okay. I accept also that, on the contrary, I like the idea of infinity. To me, to me, infinity in mathematics is symbolizes transcendence, symbolizes something that is beyond logic and reason in some sense. But we form, we formalize it in mathematics as an infinite set. You see, interesting. And I yeah. am, I am, I admit, I admit, okay, I admit that confession I am time. drawn. Yes, a confession. I'm drawn to it because of my psychological composition. That's what it is. It's my preference. My psychological preference, my aesthetic preference, yes. my ontological, philosophical preference. Like you don't mind the paradoxes that come about. In fact, they're welcome. But it cannot be. But the whole point of science that we do not resolve our uh, disputes on ideological ground. This is not a fertile approach. This is not a fruitful approach. There's a much better way to do it. I will do, I will do, I will work with a system of axioms which is closer to me, to my psychological, philosophical, you know, metaphysical ideas. But I, I, it should not be judged on that. I will, I will, me and my colleagues who accept that infinity, we will work and we will produce results. And my colleagues who do not accept okay. infinity will work and produce results and will compare. And then we will see in the next generation young mathematicians who are not yet burdened by all this ideology, they will look and they, and they will, you know how they say, vote with your legs, with your feet. They will go in the direction which is more fruitful. That is real science, in my opinion. That's how you resolve it. You resolve it. Now, the problem is that you can have people who are pr- blocking that process. For instance, let's suppose somebody is attracting a lot of resources to their theory, you know, because they say it's correct. Then it puts others at disadvantage. So I think that's unfair. So everybody has to have a chance to develop things unless it's clearly like wrong, inconsistent. Yeah. So on. Do you have an example in mind when you're saying this? Oh, yes. <laughs> Many examples or just one in particular? <laughs> one very special example. I'll, I'll get to it. So for instance, what affinities do, it does not resonate with me. It does not resonate with me because I think, uh, because, you know, I'll tell you why. So they basically accept only finite set because they exclude this axiom. So, okay, but then you can prove, for example, that within their formal system, you cannot prove some statements even about finite sets. In other words, some statements about finite sets, you can only prove if you accept the axiom of infinity. That's the weird paradoxical aspect of it. You can actually prove that you cannot, you can prove that you cannot prove some statements about finite sets. So it, to me, it means a straitjacket. You put a straitjacket on yourself. You limit yourself. Why? Simply because you don't like the idea of infinity. Well, okay. Uh, why limit yourself? Why limit yourself when you can... So but, so that's my view. But mm-hmm. I respect them. And I would like, for instance, there is a project 
to try to reprove various statements. For example, Fermat's last theory, proof of Fermat's last theorem. Try to write a proof which never uses infinite sets. This is a project on which several very distinguished logicians, you know, mathematicians have worked on. And I last time I looked, it's inconclusive. They don't claim that they can do it. But there are some other famous problems in mathematics that they were able to prove without appealing to infinity. And I applaud that because at the end of the day, it's also helpful to know what is a minimal set of requirements for you to prove something, okay? But ultimately, I think the correct argument why the theory with the axiom of infinity is superior today to the ax- to the uh, system of axioms without infinity is that we can produce a lot more. And it is, mm-hmm. there are many statements which are not known to be derivable by without axiom infinity. There are many statements which we know cannot be derived without axiom of infinity, and so on. So therefore, it becomes limiting, limiting to our progress. And, you know, I also, the other thing I want to say is that today, there are algorithms based on um, elliptic curve encryption, stuff like that, which is actually used in, in, in the Bitcoin blockchain, for instance. And it's not clear to me whether the, 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 the mathematical theorems which underpin these algorithms can be proved without the axiom of infinity. So effect, if that is the case, effectively, it means that it becomes part of our life. The infinity finds a way, a backdoor into our life through various theoretical statements on which our technology is based. Now, I'm not claiming that that's the case, but that's how, for instance, that's how it can actually affect us because somebody could say, okay, this is, is some really esoteric argument because between these weird mathematicians, like who cares? You care because technology is woven into the fabric of our lives to such an extent that, yes, a lot of very hard, uh, difficult mathematics is now being used in, for instance, in transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain. And that's just one example. Okay, we're going to get to examples. These examples I have given were to uh, to illustrate the point that, number one, is mathematics is also based on, there is a choice involved. But number two, so in other words, there is a subjective element. And this is only one. So just a a brief um, addition to this. This is one way in which um, the observer is involved. The the first-person perspective is involved. The other one is, of course, when we write proofs, who who decides whether it is correct or not. We are not yet at at the stage of full automation of verification of proofs and eventually yeah. probably some of it can be done by computers it's not yeah. there yet so it's human mathematicians who are reading those papers and and ascertaining whether the proof is correct or not a famous example is andrew wiles we talked about earlier his original proof of Fermat's last theorem had a gap how was it found it was found by the gap was found by uh, by a mathematician nicholas katz who was uh, andrew wiles colleague at princeton university who looked very carefully and he asked questions, probing questions, he finally asked the question, how does this follow from this? And Andrew Wells could not answer it. So it was determined that there is a gap. And luckily, a year later, Andrew Wiles, with the help of his former student, Richard Taylor, was able to close this gap. And after that, so what gives us the, the confidence that the proof is correct? What if there is another gap? We cannot be 100% sure this is the point. It is the accepted as a, is a true is a true proof by other practicing mathematicians. That's the market of ideas that I'm talking about. Even in mathematics, you have this market of ideas. There isn't something that is objective and completely detached from our personalities, from our from re- real living, breathing mathematicians. 
That is something that's very important. And it's an indication that even mathematics is like this. And for sure, it's like this in many other subjects which do not even have the appearance of the subjective reality, of, of objective reality, right? It, it, mathematics does have the appearance of objective reality more so than any other subject in science, in my opinion. But what I'm trying to argue is that it's an, it's an illusion. At the bottom of it, there, is a cho- there are choices made by living mathematicians, okay? That's the first point. How, the second point, however, it doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mean that anyone come up with some uh, fancy mathematical objects and it somehow, for instance, there is a notion of a group. It's one of the cornerstones of mathematics, a notion of a group. A group is like a symmetry. It's a collection of symmetries operating on a particular object. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Like a glass, a glass, around glass, all rotations of the glass. So it can be, it is encapsulated by some axioms where you have some binary operation that satisfies such, pro- such and such properties, associativity being the most important one. What if somebody comes up and replaces associativity with something else? Some, you know, a different right. property. Yeah. And actually people try to do that. How? Guess what? Groups are fundamental. Those other things are not. Why? Because groups have led to very important advances. They have applications in many areas. And those other fancy objects don't. And that's how... That's why mathematicians work on groups and not on those other things, which to, to, uh, to a detached observer who is not involved in the subject will look like, okay, so in this axiom, you have three terms and this you have four terms. What's the difference? They look very similar. But we choose one and not the other for a reason. And that is the objective element, you see, because it comes now from the community of mathematicians working on it, applying it to different areas. And there's a criterion of fruitfulness. And th- that's what replaces objectivity in some sense. But it's a, notion, it's a notion which is accepted today by the community. Maybe one of those fancy objects that we don't pay attention to today because we think that they're useless. Maybe somebody will find applications for them in a few years, and then they will become – a lot of people will work on that, you see. But it's a process. It's a process. So there is – obviously, there is no theory of everything in this process. Or, if there, or many. Maybe there are many. How do we overcome this then need or this fallacy of confusing something's effectiveness 
its ubiquitous application with its ontological status. Yes. So this is something that computationalists do, where they see the effectiveness of computers, and they say, well, at, then at the basis of reality is computers. Yeah, that's right. Or some people, well, I have several it, examples in it, mind. This, absolutely. And that's why I am, that's why I devote time to do, talk about this, because this is one of the policies, like you said, that I have in mind. To, and I think that this discussion of what mathematics is about is very much relevant to understanding why it is a policy. We have to overcome this temptation to believe that the knowledge we have acquired is sufficient to explain everything, or at least like a large portion of reality. This has never worked. It has never worked and never will work, in my opinion. And case in point, computation. A lot of people today say that everything is computation. And what do they mean by this? So they learned computation. They think they've learned computer science or computer mathematics. Yeah. And it's a, it's a child who learned trigonometry, 11-year-old who learned trigonometry. And now he sees trigonometry in everything. Look, there is a wheel. It's trigonometry. Look at the triangle. It's the trigonometry. Uh-huh. Everything is trigonometry. It's a very natural and almost endearing quality of human beings. But unfortunately, it leads us astray. And I think that maybe time has come for us to finally let go of this of this approach. And for instance, in, in the case of computation, since you mentioned, it's something that which is very much relevant today because all the computer, so-called AI, all these computer programs and chat GPT and so on. I have spent some time reading the, the founders, like Alan Turing. Okay? So Alan Turing is credited as the father of modern computation, creating the framework for modern computation, proving the most important results. What was the most important result that he immediately proved after he came up with his idea of encapsulating computation as a Turing machine. It was a statement that there are things which are not computable by Turing machines. In other words, computation, the paradigm of computation contains within itself its own demise, the realization that it's not everything. And the great ones, in this case, the founder, Alan Turing, one of the smartest people who have ever lived, he saw it right away and he did not see it as a bug. He saw it as a feature. And if you read his work, it's an incredibly deep and honest, sincere analysis of what it means, or what its implications are. Because, of course, he was fascinated with the idea of thinking machines, of intelligent machines. But if you read his paper on intelligent machines, I actually have it somewhere. So first of all, he writes in 1945, The class of problems capable of solutions by the machine can be defined fairly specifically. They are a subset of those problems which can be solved by human clerical labor, working to fixed rules and without understanding, without understanding. Now, intelligence, by the way, comes from the word intelligere, which means to understand. How can we talk about intelligence of computers when the father of of computing conceded the point that they're not understanding Uh what they're doing. How many computer scientists are aware? Computer scientists who speak out on this and say, we already entered the age of AI, it's going to take over human beings. If we are lucky, they will use it as as plants, you know, as decorations in their homes and so on. How many of them are even aware of this quote? That's my first question. Yes. Okay, my second question. (laughs) 
he few says, questions here. So my second question. So there's another paper in which which is uh, which is called which is called intelligent machinery. Uh, I think it's called intelligent machinery, and he talks about objections to the possibility of intelligent machines. He says the original question: Can machines think? is too meaningless to deserve discussion. Nevertheless, I believe that at the end of the century, the use of words and general educated opinion will have altered so much that, that one will be able to speak to mach- of machine thinking without expecting to be contradicted, you see? Will have what so much? I believe that at the end of the century, and that means 20th century, yeah. the use of words and general educated opinion will have altered so much that one will be able to speak of machine thinking without expecting to be contradicted. In other words, he's basically saying that's not a good way to phrase it, but he's resigned to the fact that that's how people will talk about it. Uh-huh. Right? Yes. I believe further that no useful purpose is served by concealing these beliefs. By concealing, sorry, by concealing these beliefs. Sure. The popular view that scientists proceed inexorably from well-established fact to well-established fact, never being influenced by any unproved conjecture, is quite mistaken. You see, conjectures are of great importance since they suggest useful lines of research. So for him, from the beginning, the possibility of intelligent machines was a conjecture. And now he says, and now he says, I now proceed to consider opinions opposed to my own. And he comes up, he comes up, listen to this. He comes up, not with one, not with two. He comes up with nine objections, nine objections. And he carefully considers each and every one of them. And the one which he finds most powerful is what he calls mathematical objection. The fact that he himself showed that there are problems which are not decidable, which are not computable, which are not solvable by a machine, by a computer. This is a very important point. It's called halting problem. The halting problem, he realized that it cannot be solved by the, the, the question, which Turing machines will halt? Which Turing machines will not go into a loop? Because you can enumerate all the Turing machines, and you, I can ask whether there is a, an algorithm or a Turing machine which will which will. Does the halting problem implicitly have an idea of the concept of infinity? Yes, yes. So the objection would be, well, hey, we just get rid of the infinity. Lo- you can't get rid of it. That's the point. You even you have to accept at least potential infinity because otherwise the position is untenable. Otherwise, your position is that there is a biggest number n, and n plus one does not exist. This, even finitists today, they would not agree with. Finitists do not say that there isn't a number greater by one than any given number, meaning there is a billion, there's a billion and one, there's a gazillion, there's a gazillion and one, okay? They don't, they don't argue with that. That's called potential infinity. What they argue about is whether there is such a thing as a totality of all positive natural numbers, whether it exists as a thing in and of itself. For them, what exists is always a finite set of numbers from 1 to n, or from 1 to n plus 1, from 1 to n plus 2, and so on, right, right, but right. not from 1 to infinity. That is, it seems like a subtle difference, but that is what separates finitists from the rest of mathematicians. It's that. Finitists will now, and I don't know of any mathematician who actually seriously entertains the idea that there is a biggest number. Yeah. Because you know that there is this number. And then there is also number one, and then there's not the operation of additional numbers. So how can it not give you n plus one? You see. So therefore, you cannot avoid potential infinity. You can avoid absolute infinity, which is what finities do. 
by saying that the set of natural all natural numbers does not exist, only its finite subsets at any moment. That is a reasonable position. But they still cannot avoid the fact that for every number there is one more. And that is what is a, that is what uh, gives halting problem. Not the, you don't need to assume absolute infinity for it at all. Just the thing that that, it, it, that the machine runs, if it stops, you're in luck. But what if it doesn't stop? It means that in finite time, you cannot decide whether, it's, whether it stops, you see. That's, that is the cornerstone of, of the impossibility of solving the halting problem. Infinity is underneath it, but it's, it's a li- infinity light. It's a potential infinity. I was speaking with Dror, Dror Barnettin. He's an ultra-finitist. So I asked him explicitly, do you believe the number 5 to the power 100 to the power 100 to the power 200 doesn't exist? And he paused and thought about it. He said, no, it doesn't exist. Okay. Yeah, and yet so, you, you just described it. So that's very interesting. Right, right, right. So it doesn't right. exist, yet you just named it. So what did you name? <laughs> yes. Well, you named a unicorn. You named something, right? Yeah. But anyway, I could be misquoting him or misremembering. So who knows? But there are ultra-finitists. Maybe. I don't know. I think it's a bit of a... Um, if I may say so, a little bit a little bit of posturing. It's a yes, bit yes, of yes. posturing. So, Professor, this seems... Yeah. I see the same passion that you have for math that you have for this subject, this new philosophical oh, yeah. subject. No, for sure. When did this start? This also started 10 years ago? Yes. So this started with the questioning of what am I doing this for? Is it correlated? Very much correlated. Very much correlated. Yeah. So I was going to say, yes. So I, wa- I wanted to say what, what I quoted. I wanted to say which source. It's called Computing Machinery and Intelligence. It's an article Turing wrote in 1950. Okay. And so where he gives nine, he gives nine objections to his own ideas. And he analyzes them carefully. How many computer scientists do you know today who, um, number one, aware of the fact that Turing was trying to grapple with these issues from the outset? And he was very um, uneasy about them, right? Yes. How many computer scientists and proponents of AI, so to speak, or like acolytes of AI, how many of them actually aware what the father of their subject was thinking about it? And number two, how many of them put in their papers objections to their own ideas and seriously engage with those objections instead of dismissing them outright? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how many will answer um, the bo- yes to both questions. I'm not sure. And that is, tr- <laughs> we say troubling, so we say disconcerting. Why is it that the father of the subject felt it imperative upon himself to engage critics in a very serious way and sincere way. And by the way, it, it, was, it was in dialogue with Gödel because it's very connected to Gödel's incompleteness. And he was aware, was aware right away of this, and Gödel too. And even years later, so Turing died in 1954. In 1973, Gödel decided to add a remark to his earlier paper in which he argues with Turing. So it's, it's kind of... It's kind of weird because you could say kind of unfair because Turing cannot respond. But I think it's, on the contrary, it shows the great respect of Yodel to Turing. So he writes, a philosophical error in Turing's work, Turing, uh, Yodel writes, and this is, I think, I believe in 1973, 74. 
And he says, Gödel, Kurt Gödel says, Turing in his, his 1937 paper gives an argument which is supposed to show that mental procedures cannot go beyond mechanical procedures. However, this argument is inconclusive. Okay? Uh-huh. What Turing disregards completely is the fact that mind in its use is not static, but constantly developing. For example, we understand abstract terms more and more precisely as we go on using them, and that more and more abstract terms enter the sphere of our understanding, and so on. So he gets a technical argument. And I'm not trying to say he's right or he's wrong. They engaged with each other in a dialogue from the beginning because they understood the importance of this question. They understood the implications for our society. And Turing was right. He said, by the end of the century, this will become commonplace. And a lot of people will be saying this. Even if I think the question, do can machines think, is not a productive one, this is this is reality. This is going to happen. So we might as well, I might as well now lay the foundations of this and have a framework for discussing this. What does it mean? And he goes to uh, nine arguments, nine arguments against it. And then the third one, the third argument is the mathematical objection which is Gödel's incompleteness theorem. There are, he says, he writes, there are a number of results of mathematical logic which can be used to show that there are limitations to the powers of discrete state machines. The best known of these results is known as Gödel's theorem and shows that in any sufficiently powerful logical system, statements can be formulated which can neither be proved nor disproved within the system unless possibly the system itself is inconsistent, and so on. And then he writes, I do not think this view can be dismissed quite so lightly. You see, he is himself not sure. And in fact, the year he died in 1954, he talked about in his last article, published 1954, in a kind of a popular, in a popular magazine, Science News. At the very end, this is 1954, just about the time he died. He says the results, in, it's called solvable and unsolvable problems. And he's arguing that, that what what theory of computer science shows is that there are unsolvable problems. There are things which cannot be solved by an algorithm. And this is important. I think a lot of people have not really had the chance to think about it to a large extent because of atrocious state of our education. And I feel it's imperative for somebody like me who actually sure. got exposed to it. Who, and I'm not saying this, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm presenting some truth which has not been known. It's all very well known to specialists, whether they would like to turn a blind eye to it or not. It is well known, but to most people, it is not well known. So I, I, I think that this and it's not present in the conversation about AI. That at least I don't see it that much present. You see, and this idea that as soon as you that that, that computation includes within itself the idea that things are uncomputable, they're un- undecidable, unsolvable. Here's a book that, for instance, there's a whole collection of articles here. What are the words which I used in the title? Undecidable propositions, unsolvable problems, uncomputable functions. Can you show that book once more? Okay, The Undecidable by Martin Davis, and that'll be in the description, as well as the link to the two see, articles that you mentioned of Turing. The limitations, the inherent limitations of computation. Okay? Uh, he grappled with this from the beginning because he's understood the power of it, the potentiality of it. He also liked the idea of much of intelligent machines, but he also understood that it's not so simple. Yes. That there are serious arguments why it's not possible. So in 1954, and he's 
I have read through several papers in the, in the, in the, of his to see the evolution of his views also. He's not, dog, he's not dogmatic. He's not like, it's like that. And then I'm going to prove it, you know, with all the power that I have while ignoring all opposite arguments, which unfortunately we see that today all too uh-huh. often. That's not his approach at all. And his last paper, his last paper, in fact, He's, he finishes with saying the results which have been described in this article are mainly of a negative character, setting certain bounds to what we can hope to achieve purely by reasoning. See, he is already expanding from computation to reasoning. He says this and some other results of mathematical logic may be regarded as going some way towards a demonstration within mathematics itself of the inadequacy of reason, quote unquote, unsupported by common sense inadequacy of reason unsupported by common sense are you aware of penrose's and lucas's argument that says of that of course he- oh yes penrose is fantastic book i have it here you know uh the book this and actually there are two books but this i love this one you see how many bookmarks <laughs> yeah yeah so here's something that you made me think about there's something called in ancient Greece, there's something called the unity of virtues. Have you heard of that? To some extent, I suppose, yes. Yeah, okay. So basically it says that you can't have one of the virtues without incorporating the rest as you increase in the virtues. You can't be brave without being honest. True bravery requires honesty. And then true honesty mm. requires courage. I wish I wish it were so, I, I wish it were so simple, but okay. Yeah, well, anyway, they were saying that as you have more and more of them, they unify at something like the most good, which they would equate with God. Mm-hmm. Then you had me thinking, well, okay, look at this. We're taught more to think algebraically and algorithmically than we are to think in the way that the Greeks did with lines and circles. So less geometric, at least in this is my case for my education. Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking, well, the people who are the most playful with their ideas and creative and poetic and romantic they tend to be the more geometric side of the mathematicians. So for instance, Einstein, Penrose, Michael Atiyah. And then I was wondering, this is a huge speculative jump. Is this in some way related to prioritizing this algorithmic, symbolic, syntactic manipulation over something that's more physical and geometric? And I'll give another quick example. I never <clears throat> cared about why can't you put a circle in a square? It's something like squaring the circle or a circle outside of the square. Because I'm like, who cares? You can just draw that. But then there's a specific set of rules with compasses and so on. That never, I'm just trained algebraically, like trained in terms of that's how I studied in school. Mm-hmm. I wonder, and most of my generation is, maybe even your generation. And I wonder how much well, of this dismissal of, of these grand ideas comes from a dismissal of geometry, like picture proofs are, hey, look, if you rearrange this. You can, you can have... You can, there is something to what you're saying, and there is a famous quote, which I don't remember who said it, maybe idea, that uh, God is like influenced math- mathematicians through geometry and devil through algebra, you know, through uh, symbolic that's manipulation. Okay, wonderful, okay so wonderful. Other, there is some truth to it. In uh-huh. other words, there is more imagination in some sense in geometry. Langlands program, in a way, is what tries to unify discrete and continuous and, sim- and symbolic algebraic with geometric imaginative in a way. That's what I find beautiful. Ultimately, all of these distinctions that we make, these are all distinctions in our mind. They're all the uh-huh. distinctions. This is a story we tell ourselves. If I believe that there is a 
boundary. There is a, um, a line between the two. This is how it is for me then. But it's like people say truth and beauty, you know? So it, it's, it's already implicit in that is that the truth they will find, they don't expect to be beautiful. And the beauty they find, they don't expect to be true. But you yourself made the distinction. You yourself drew the line between the two. It doesn't have to be this way. You can say truth slash beauty, one thing, or truth dash beauty, you know, one thing. And then in your life, you are more likely to encounter true things which are beautiful and beautiful things which are true. Same with geometry, algebra, and so on. These are all ultimately, in this, these are all frameworks that we create. And mod, in modern mathematics, you cannot do one without the other. The progress is made when you, when they hit upon each, each other, when they, when they touch each other. Algebraic methods, geometric methods, and so on. That's why we have algebraic geometry, which was created in the modern, modern version, was created by the genius Alexander Grothendieck, whom we mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. His genius was precisely to be able to connect them, put them together, you see. So, but there are, there are people who are dogmatic on both sides, who are predominantly algebraic or predominantly geometric. I think what is essential to understand is how much we are informed by our own psychology, how much we are informed by our own aesthetic preferences, our philosophical preferences, our metaphysical preferences. It's, in other words, the quantity of subjective-objective, some, you know, a friend of mine who... Um, listen to my inter- recent interview with uh, Lex Friedman, conversation with Lex Friedman, where I talked about subjective, kind of like similar to what mm-hmm. we're discussing, the subjective. He's like, well, but it's kind of troubled. I feel it's uncomfortable with it because you're proposing to replace some objective things by subjective. That is totally missing the point. What the point is to realize that you have always been doing this. You have always admixed your subjective to what you believe is objective. And then you try to come up with an argument presenting your ideas as if they're detached from you. I would con- contend that that's not the case, that it's always present. So it is not about replacing something with something. It's about acknowledging. That's what, that's what you have been doing all along or what I have been doing all along. To what extent my theories, yeah. which I like to think of as objective, are driven, are motivated by, by my subjective preferences. For instance, we talked about I like infinity. Yeah. I just like it. So it's my aesthetic preference. But if on the basis of this, I will start saying that everybody should like it, and those people who don't accept axiom infinity are stupid or misguided, that's where I go astray. And that's where I, I introduce unnecessary, I put unnecessary strain yeah. on my mathematics. And, and you know it always when somebody is really emotional about it. They give themselves away, you know, because as a friend of mine once said, uh, a, a very a smart fellow, he said, you know, you're not going to argue with someone who will say gravity doesn't exist. He said, oh, yeah, good luck. Good luck. Gravity doesn't exist. You're not going to argue with the froze, you know, the corners of your mouth. That That's not the case. And likewise, when somebody is arguing too passionately about something, it means that is something there in here unresolved. We are not paying attention to this. We are pretending that in science we are really driven by some objective reality. Yes, we are, to a large extent. Like I said, our, as a community, we decide which axioms are more fruitful and so on. But as a, as a human being, as an individual, I'm also very much driven by things which are come from my psychology, my psychological composition, but my philosophical preferences from my, you know, and my job is to be aware of it. That's called self-awareness. 
Otherwise, I'm asleep. I'm half asleep. I'm not here. I'm not. And so, therefore, I am not doing my job correctly, in my opinion. So, Alan Turing was aware. So, so here is a good example. Alan Turing, as someone who was aware of the of that, this raises very interesting question. And he was not. It was. It was not. Uh, frustrated by it, he, I think it made it even more interesting for him in many ways. It's it's a shame that he the, the way he was treated by the British government, as I'm sure you know, that he was subjected to hormonal therapy. You know, because he was gay, and he died at the age of 32, as most people right. believe, by su- by suicide. What yeah. a travesty! You know. And that's the machine. The machine. That's the real machine that we should be aware of. And and careful about, you know. What do you mean? That's the machine. The machine. The government. The government power, which is unleashed to destroy an individual, a brilliant individual. And you say, well, it's because he's gay. No, he was because he was different. Uh huh. So more broadly speaking, societal norms or the government in particular. Well, in this case, it was obviously it was a government, uh, not government, government, but the government agents, obviously. Sorry, I mean, what I mean to say is the machine in general for us, is it in your mind, is it the government or is it societal norms or is it? Um, I don't know. I, I, I purposely, I purposely dropped this word because the machine could mean computer or quote unquote artificial intelligence, which people are arguing about now, whether it has the power to subjugate humans and so on, right? So here's a man who actually theorized that possibility in the most advanced way possible, Alan Turing. And he's actually destroyed by a machine of a different kind. Interesting. See? I see. How interesting, yeah. huh? Yeah. I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to spoil it by revealing the, the punchline. You know, like, let's think about this. Let's think about what does this tell us? What does it tell us? In other words, he was so inconvenient somehow. And, and this is a man who was instrumental in deciphering the Enigma machine, you know, who has contributed so much to the defense of the United Kingdom. And how many years passed before they finally apologized for what they did, or at least acknowledged the government mm-hmm. of the UK? What does it tell us? Is this like an isolated incident? Or is this something that has been a kind of a norm? That somebody who is different, somebody who is different, no matter how much they contributed to the a given society is ostracized and ultimately destroyed. So how do you not get destroyed from thinking about, well, okay. You mentioned self-awareness. Self-awareness. So he is a man who was self-aware, you see, and that's why I would like to, I would like to emphasize this point. And I would like more people to pay attention and say, Alan Turing could do that. Can I, can I also look in a kind of, um, um, what's the word, a, a neutral kind of way on the things without emotional investment in it. But at, on, on look at the facts, way different ideas, different opinions without being engaging in ad hominem attacks or, you know, like getting overly emotional about it. Can I? And if not, and if I can't, let's find out why. Let's find out what is really, what within me is creating trouble, so to speak. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Is there something that's bad about being emotional about it? Because you're clearly passionate about what you're saying. But I wouldn't say that's that right. what you said is wrong because it means you're emotional. So, yes, but for, for, 
it's important for me to know where it comes from. Like you, you did ask me this, and I, I will, I, I can explain briefly. But yes, I, I'm not arguing that there shouldn't be passion. Of course, this is this that is an engine of progress. But the question is, your passion comes from something you're aware of, or something in your unconscious. Okay. You see, and that is essential because mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm not aware what is actually driving me. Chances are I'm not actually going to be effective, even if I am proposing good ideas and so on, because there's too much spurious stuff admixed, which are on me, which I can resolve within me. I don't need Albert Einstein to resolve it for me or Alan Turing. I can resolve it myself if I'm interested, you see? Yeah. Specifically speaking, how did you come to this? How do you realize, quote unquote, realize, I have to be careful about How did I get interested in this subject? More like, let's say you have predilections or flaws or pros and cons, but they're unconscious. And then to go back to this onion metaphor. That's right. There's a finite layer, but you can start to peel away the layers. What is this process of peeling for you? Is it I go to therapy? Is it I read a certain amount of books and I ask myself this? Is it I meditate? The process is different for everyone. Yes. There isn't one. uh, I believe there's no one formula. Actually, all the methods you... Yeah, it's useful to hear the stories from people who have gone through... Absolutely. I think that we absolutely... The way, the best way that we can um, address this is by actually sharing our stories and not trying to, uh, to say it should, it should be done this way or that way. Yeah, but this is was the first step, you see. This is what led me to the process of self-inquiry. So I already mentioned how uh, it led me to questioning, for instance, why am I doing mathematics? Am I doing it because I love it or am I doing it because I want to achieve recognition and awards and so on? That's what was one of the things came out of it. But the much bigger thing that came out of it is the whole idea of self-inquiry, the whole idea that there are some things which I'm not aware of. The question, who am I? I thought I heard this question before. I knew that it was inscribed on the Apollo, the Apollo temple in Delphi, but I didn't understand what it meant. Who am I? I am Edward Frankel. I am a, you know, Berkeley professor. It's a dangerous question. It's a very dangerous question when you actually engage with it, for real. Yeah, it's a terrifying question. And we can't do it on our own, I think. Ultimately, it has to be some, somebody in your life. So it could be a therapist, for instance. In my case, I was lucky. There was some human being who just came into my world, who was a, a wise woman, let's just say, a wise woman, and somebody I respected, who... And this is about a year after the book came out. So this is summer of 2014. The book was published in October 2013. So I was ready to, to go beyond to, from Edward 1.0 to <laughs> Edward 2.0. You have to be ready for it in some sense. And and then the the universe, quote unquote, will conspire. At least that's what happened to me. And I have since heard stories, similar stories from other people. So what happened was that she basically, so we started talking about life and so on. And I was very curious about reality. What is reality? Because I was obsessed with the idea that where mathematics comes from. It was very clear to me it doesn't come from human minds, specific human minds. Like Pythagoras did not create Pythagoras theorem, you know? Hmm. Or Evaris Galois did not create Galois groups. They were there for him to discover. But then what does it mean? What is reality then? What is at the base of reality? And in fact, if you look, and, and the title of my book is Love and Math, and the subtitle is The Heart of Hidden Reality. So it's kind of like my search for hidden reality was happening, even if I was not fully aware of what I'm doing, even when I was writing it. 
And then the, the crucial thing that she told me, she said, yes, Edward, there is hidden reality, quote unquote, but it's not outside. You think you find it somewhere. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's within you. You have to learn more about yourself. And so, and I, it's like, what does it mean? So then she told me some stories of what it means, what it meant in her case, that she was able to reconnect to some childhood experiences that she had when she was an adult already. And that completely changed her, changed her view, her outlook. And suddenly things start happening. I start remembering things that happened to me as a child. In particular, the experience that I described in the book, in chapter three, about my exam when I was 16 years old and I was not accepted, was not, uh, was failed at the, uh, ruthlessly at the exam at Moscow University. I thought I knew, I remembered it. I remembered it factually. I remembered it as a third person, from a third person perspective. But I did not remember it from the first person. And so then suddenly this, this happened in September of 2014, where I was asked to speak about it. And the night before at my hotel, I was able to connect to that boy. And it was like a tsunami. I, I realized what happened. And what Did a, you break down crying? Oh, of course. But it was, it was worse because in some sense it was worse because the thought that I had in my mind was no amount of tears justify this world, justify this life. Why? What is the point? Oh, geez. It's really, really yeah, kind of sad yeah. moment because you realize a part of you died. I realized part of me died when I was 16 years old, and I was not even aware of it for 30 years. Okay? So I am moving on the battlefield of life, crippled, basically, like I'm missing a limb, and I'm not mm-hmm. even aware of it. And my mind, my conscious mind, constantly, don't look there, don't look there, don't look there. That's why I was coming up with all of these ideas about the universe and reality the objective reality and so on, because how convenient. It's all deterministic, I, and uh, it's all a bag of particles, so particles don't feel pain, or a human is an algorithm. So it's a coping mechanism. Coping mechanism? For me, for me, it definitely was. And I will never say that it's true for everybody. Maybe it is for some people, maybe it's not. All I'm doing, I'm sharing my story. This is my story. I am convinced that some of the naive and, and vapid quite frankly, ideas that I entertained about the world were to a large extent motivated by me not willing to find out what happened to me when I was 16 years old mm-hmm. because it was too painful. Because it was too painful. I wrote a piece about this, by the way. I was asked to... Uh, I've spoken about this a number of times, including my last conversation with Lex Friedman. But... Uh, I also wrote a short piece for the, for a volume by um, um, my, my 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 friend who is an expert, uh, Jimpolsky, who is a friend who is a, an expert on AI safety. So he published a volume. I'll link it in volume. the description. Yeah, academic volume on um, AI safety and security, and he asked me to contribute about first person perspective. So I wrote about this and to what extent this. Um, defined me you know um not knowing not knowing because then your life becomes driven to a large extent by creating barriers of finding out and that's what it means who you are who am i right so i understood what it means if i if there is this part of me which i chopped off why because it was too painful so it is a defense mechanism and nothing wrong with it. We all happens to all of us, I believe, to some extent. And there is a lot of literature about this, by the way, and, and neuroscience uh, confirmations and so on. So 
but it's me, it's part of me, and yet I'm no longer connected to it. So do I know who I am? No, because there is this part of me which I'm not connected to. So that's one way in which you can, um, it's a very, it becomes a very practical question. Who am I? Is, do, am, am I aware of all my secret mm-hmm. little Edwards? And not yeah. necessarily, it could happen in adolescence and in adult life. But most traumatic experiences, most difficult experiences usually happen when the children were not yet equipped to deal with this pain. And for me, it definitely it defined my life. It gave me a lot of fuel, but propelled me to become a mathematician and so to achieve and so on. To prove those guys who failed me that uh-huh. how good I am, you see, so... Five years after I failed at 16, I'm, I get a letter from the president of Harvard University inviting me to visit, come to Harvard as a visiting professor. I'm barely 21 because I wrote some papers which became famous or well-known. You know? Why? Because the drive, you know. That, uh. But then the cost of it, the downside of it, is that my, I'm not, I lose that spontaneity, spontaneity of, of a child. That ability to look at the world with fresh eyes. I'm afraid of things. I'm scared. I want control. I want safety. Do you feel like that was a cost that if you were able to rewind time, you wouldn't pay? Because another perspective is, you know what, Edward? Everything that happened to you made you. I did it myself. Of course. Of course. I would not change a thing. But I can say it only now because I have connected to that child. I connect to some other painful experiences that I can say it. If somebody came to me before it happened and told me that, Edward, you should be grateful to your examiners who failed you because that's what gave, made you who you are. I would just hit them in the face. Like, what are you talking about? How dare you? But now, of course, I know. Yes, of course. I would not change a thing. It was all me all along. And yeah. I am not, uh, no qualms about it. I would not have been who I am without any of those experiences. Unless I still refuse to connect to them. If I'm still refusing, then I'm not myself fully. You see what I mean? And so you ask, how did I get interested in the subject? So then, this is 2014. Then I started getting invited to various forums to speak about this thing. And that's when, that was the first wave when AI became controversial this is mind you nine years ago but already you had people like stephen hawking and Elon musk and bill gates already voiced concerns and so this becomes my playground this conversation because i think up until that point i am in sort of this half asleep state where i am still i'm still thinking partially about myself as a kind of a machine or i would like to be a machine because the machine doesn't feel pain so you know kind of feel safe also, I feel that I know how things work. Again, feel makes me feel in control, you know. Suddenly, I all of that is swept away. My child, my inner child, you know, unfortunately, such becomes such a trope. Um, I don't want to use this expression, but um, but it's true. It's like you gain this dimension, this dimension of a. Uh, you know, Jung talked about this this archetype of divine child. That's the part of you which always wants to grow, which wants to look at the world in a fresh with a fresh eyes, which is spontaneous, which is spontaneous, which is playful. I I lost it to a large extent. 
because my real my connection to a very specific child, sixteen year old Edward, was severed. Ah. Uh, severed, uh, you know, at that okay. exam, and suddenly I'm connected. So that now I am like, wow, you know. So now I am going the opposite extreme, and I'm saying. You know, this. so then for me, AI becomes this ideas of AI, the ideas of uploading like the singularity and uploading your mind and so on. It becomes totally opposite to what I'm experiencing, right? It almost becomes the idea of me being captured by this, but again, by, the, by my cerebral side. Because ultimately for me, this discussion about AI, it, it's just a safe way to talk about ourselves. AI represents our... our um, cerebral logical side, like in the movie uh, the 2001 Space Odyssey by, by, by the great Stanley Kubrick, HAL 9000. What is HAL 9000? He is the, the cerebral part of Dave Bowman, the astronaut, which has run amok. I don't know if you're familiar mm. with this movie. Yes, 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 yes. So that becomes the motivation for this, for this, for this interest, you see. And so ultimately, I understand also that we need to find balance because, of course, this is these are amazing technological innovations, and there's nothing wrong with them as long as we f- put phrase the phrase our inquiry, our questions properly, not as a question of as already Alan Turing said. It's not a good way. Are they thinking? Are they conscious? Are they intelligent? The question is to what extent they help. They are here to facilitate. To help me to be as good an Edward as I can be, mm-hmm. it's like it's like artists in the end of nineteenth, end of nineteenth, beginning of twentieth century after photography was discovered. So suddenly, you don't need to be being an artist is not about rendering things realistically, because a, 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 a camera can do it better than you. So what do you do? Did artists say it's over for us? We we become the captives, the, the slaves of the of the photo camera. No, they discover other ways to express themselves. That's how you get impressionism, abstract art, cubism, you know, surrealism, and so on. Where the focus is more on the ex- inner experience of the viewer and the artist. You see, they accepted the challenge and it propelled them to the next level. And likewise, for us, I think it's very clear that. Chat GPT is showing us that some of the things that perhaps we thought it were, were creative, they're not that they're not that creative. A computer program, which is basically trained on just correlations of things in various texts throughout the internet, can actually reproduce it and maybe do a better job than you do. So I take it as a challenge. What am I bringing to the table if this computer program can replace these things? So what what can I what can I do that it cannot do? Yes. Yes. You see. Yeah, so there's something called the moving of the goalpost fallacy, which I don't see as always a fallacy. So for instance, you just mentioned, we thought that creativity was the ability to draw accurately, let's say in the early 90s. That's right, that's right. Then we realized, okay, something else can do that. So we changed what creative means. But it's not because, in the one sense, you can say we've moved the goalpost, but it's not a fallacy because our original definition reflects our ignorance. We realize something. Completely, because we can grow. That's the whole point. Everybody, especially, I love it when it comes from people who are actually completely sold on evolution. They say it's only it's the only force in, in, in development of, say, human beings or other species. 
you may agree or disagree with it. And some people say that maybe there are some other things that have to be taken into account. I'm not going to make a, ju- a judgment, but I'm just curious. What do you think evolution is for human beings? If it's not, this is a very good example how we can evolve. is because uh-huh. we are challenged by the technology that we ourselves create. Now, this is a very different framework, a very different mindset than the mindset of the sort of end of the world and how these things are going to capture us and kill us and so on. It's not productive, obviously. But this challenge, take it as a challenge. Take how you respond to it. You know, I think it's very productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of people are, I'm not saying something original. I have heard a lot of people say that. It's just that no, it's not necessarily represented in the debate that you could see in the media uh, because usually it's computer scientists who are being questioned. And let me tell you, if somebody asked me 10 years ago before I had my, um, how to say, because before I started to ask the question, who am I? Well, I would give you an answer. I would have given you an answer. Yeah. Very, very confidently. Yes, very confidently. Yes. You know? <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. the quant. That's the thing. And maybe that's another sign that you shouldn't, trust someone is how assertive and how little self-doubt do they show. I, I, I want to be personal, if you don't mind, and yeah. reveal something to you. Maybe this will go and maybe it won't. When you mentioned, look, you had some childhood issues. I've always heard this like childhood issues, childhood issues. And I've explored my childhood. I can't find issues. But then I realized, okay, well, you said 16. So I think I had, well, when I was 17, I had my heart so broken like i don't think it's been broken as much since like ever and mm. and and man with this podcast edward like almost with everything i do i struggle like so hard i struggle 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 i push and this there's this ambition competitiveness and there's a desire in me it has to be the best it has to be undeniably the best like when I interview someone, it has to be that someone could watch all the interviews of that person and say, this toe theories of everything was the deepest with this person. And luckily, luckily, often I'll get the interviewees saying something like, like this, this, these were insightful questions I've never been asked this or, or whatever. Okay, so I get some validation or from the commenters. But, but so I'd often think, you know what? I don't have childhood issues. I have adult issues. Meaning that like, I have a, this distinct feeling that 10 years from now, I'll look at myself now and want to hug him. Like, just say, mm-hmm. hey man, like, you, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I'm broken now. But I also think that much of that comes from crippling feelings of self-doubt and inadequacy from when I was 17. Sure. Sure. Exactly, exactly right. Exactly right. And then the thing is, in what you say, is, I, I resonate completely. But one thing, one has to be very careful in saying uh, there was no issue or whatever. It, it's our thinking mind who says that. Our thinking mind is very limited. So Jung, the, one of the main um, ideas that he brought sort of out and became um, um, part of our collective discourse is the idea of unconscious. Uh, Freud talked about subconscious. I, I prefer unconscious. So this idea that there are some realms of the psyche which are not accessible to the thinking mind yet. And it's very important to accept that, I think, because then it's not anymore that the the thinking mind is the final arbiter of what did or did not happen. In my case, if you ask me in 2014, before I had my sort of experience, every connection, are you connected to that boy that was 
suffer it in, in mm-hmm. 1984 in, in this exam? I would say yes, of course, because I remember every fact of it. And in fact, I wrote it. I wrote the story in my book, which was published a year before. Interesting enough, a lot of people were were inspired by it. And they, a lot of people came, wrote to me or talked to me about it, but they were touched by it. And I was surprised because I was not yet touched by it. But mm-hmm. because I, that's the power of art. Because I wanted to write a book and to connect to my readers, I allowed the boy to speak. I was not yet ready to speak to the boy. Me, adult Edward in 2013 or 2012. But because I wanted to book the book to be real, I delegated this chapter to him. And it was the first time that he was unfiltered. He spoke. Not to me yet. He spoke to the readers of the book. But the ice was broken. So mm. barely a year later, I finally found the courage and the strength to speak to him directly and to understand, to remember what happened. So my thinking mind was not aware of it. It's very important to understand. And it's, you cannot force it. It's very important not to force because if you're not ready for it, I could commit suicide easily. Easily. I could see that. Easily, because you're so disenchanted. You're so disappointed in this in this cruel, cruel world. You feel like there is no reason to live. And you have to be very strong to to withstand that. And in fact, the point is that it, it passes. It, it passed. And, it, and I had this amazing experience of like, he comes alive. He's within me. Like I hold him. He's here. And I, and I, and I spoke to him, to little Edward. And I said, look, you know, I'm sorry I have neglected you for 30 years. I did not know. But look what we have done. Look what we have done. It was not in vain. It was not in vain. And now you're back and I will never let anybody hurt you again. And what did the little boy say in response? He was just beaming, you know. And the next day, so I was invited to speak at this spoken word kind of event in New York in 2014. There is actually audio of it on on my website. Um, it's called a test. And I spoke, and the boy spoke. And it was like, I never experienced that kind of connection with the audience. It was the first time he actually spoke through a microphone into the audience. Because he was with me. I let him speak. So the point I was trying to make is that when we are ready, if we're sincere, if we are not actively trying to prevent this type of experience, it will happen. Don't try to force it. But always ask when something is off, like when you feel, get agitated. For me, it's like this. You get agitated unnecessarily, triggered. What is the source? When was the first time I experienced that? Under what circumstances? So that kind of gives a path to finding out the source. Because usually some kind of event, I think oftentimes, it could be a series of things. It may not be just a single event, I suppose, you know. But most powerful are, Events, like you said, when we get broken. And it doesn't have to be child. It could be adolescent, teenager. It could even be a young adult, you know. But an experience as a young adult, you, if, once you process it, it may lead you to an experience as a teenager and which can lead you to an experience when you were six-year-old or something, yeah. you know. And there is nothing wrong. It ultimately, it becomes this beautiful journey of self-discovery. It's beautiful because it's you. You learn more about yourself. People go, you know, like Columbus, he has to get on the ship and try to find India, then he doesn't find India, he finds America and so on. Here, 
It's you. You're here. You cannot run away from yourself anyway. And it becomes this beautiful process of self-discovery. And each time a new layer is lifted, you see, you start, for me, it's like this. It's been like this. I start seeing things which I couldn't see before. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it influenced my mathematics also. Did you feel like a weight was lifted and you're actually even physically more flexible? Oh, of course. Oh, it's on the level of the body. It's an incredible uh, restructuring. Which, by the way, is another way. So there is yoga, there's meditation, all kinds of things, which are also meant to reconnect us to this other dimension. The problem is for somebody like me, is in the mind. I'm in the mind. I'm in the mind. In the mind, meaning like the cerebral logical stuff. And I'm, I'm become a prisoner of it. That I try to apply. That becomes my only tool. So if I'm confused, if I'm if I'm not sure, it means it used to be for me, think about it harder. Think about it more. That's the only way. Through logic, through reason, and so William on. William James said that that's like trying to see more of the darkness by turning up the gas. Yeah, or, or it's like trying to to find darkness with a, with a lamp in, in, at night. You know, just where is it? Where is it? And um, or you know, trying to find the white snow when you look, when you have uh, orange tinted glasses on you. Where is the white? Where is the white? You know. Mm, let me put on more glasses. More glasses. More, more, more yellow. Mm. More yellow. I mean, it's very clear. So the thing is, and then going back to your earlier question. If you asked me 10 years ago about AI and all this stuff, or, you know, before all this experience. So, of course, I'll give you a particular answer because I actually chose mathematics as a way to escape from reality because reality was too cruel for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to deal with this stuff. So I found this, what I consider to be a pure world of platonic forms where there was no bigotry, there was nobody to hurt me, where I could just rebel in the beauty of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And don't bother me with your so-called wicked world you know so then how can you trust me so some people then people would come if, if they came to me and they because they look up to me as a scientist as a mathematician so i have some expertise that they don't have they would trust me to give them a kind of a, a wise answer but i was not capable of giving a wise answer by by virtue of my psychological composition isn't it obvious if I have not done any work of self-discovery, of finding out who I am, of reconnecting to the parts of myself that were lost on the battlefield of life, so to speak, how can I possibly give a, a, a good answer? But people don't realize because they think of us as our, their gurus, you know, and because they don't have, because our education system is broken. And also the popular books sometimes suggest things which are like, I go like, whoa, this is 19th century Science, which has been thoroughly repudiated by 20th century math and physics. So that's where we are. But I think luckily because of you have your your podcast and others. And I think that we it starts moving. It starts moving finally in the right direction. And the right direction is understanding that our personality, our first-person perspective is intricately connected is intertwined with our theories they do not exist on their own and we are not independent spectators and observers we are in the in the thick of it with you forgiving your examiners did you have to well okay firstly do you still feel like you're able to forgive them or is there a part of you that absolutely they suffered i know one of them actually um 
it came to my attention that one of them around the same time when I was um, reconnecting 2014, he died in a, he, he was a kind of a, he liked to go on hiking trips, like in the north of Russia alone. And that they found his body and he died in one of those trips in 2014. And the other one, I don't know, the other guy, I don't know. But I absolutely believe that they suffered. They must have suffered. I mean, how do you feel by, if you do this to a young kid who's done nothing wrong, right? So it's just because of my Jewish name, last name, my dad is Jewish. So Frankel is a Jewish name. My mom's Russian, by the way, you know, by, by blood, you know, and not religious at all and so on. And then yet you single out somebody like that. And then they give this, you give this hard questions. It's, it's a setup, right? So this is well-documented. I'm trying to say, I see that they must have suffered. I see that they were misguided. And so that's number one. And number two, also, you know, thank you for giving me all this fuel. <laughs> yeah. Without which, I mean, if I was accepted to Moscow University, oh boy, I would be living in a dorm, okay? Yeah, probably party like there is no tomorrow. Would I become a good mathematician? I'm not sure. Which, okay, would still be an interesting life. But this definitely shaped my life in a particular way and brought me to places which I may not have been um, able to reach otherwise. So in some sense, yes, thank you. It sounds weird, but it's only because my boy is here and he's not going to let me fly. You know, he's not going to say, he's laughing with me. It's like, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's the paradox. That's the, that's how... That's the transformation of life. That is evolution and growth from somebody who is not willing to look that pain in the eye, so to speak, you know, face that reality. And therefore, is bound to run away from certain experiences in life or from certain insights or from certain ways of understanding life to someone who becomes friends with that through suffering, of course. Through suffering, you cannot avoid it, in my opinion. And by the way, you know, it's not... I um, I listened to there's a great in, uh, conversation uh, in uh, between Lex Friedman and uh, Yuval Harari. You know the, the, the he wrote *Sapiens* and a great historian and writer. And he something he said a bunch of things which I really really resonate with me. He's suffering. He's a human. This is what distinguishes that from robots ultimately. So in other words, Turing had this imitation game where you have a conversation with an interrogator. And the robot is trying to convince the interrogator that it is human. But in fact, the real criterion is can it suffer? Because that is, I would say, unavoidable and essential part of human life. You know? And so running away from it limits us. Being able to process it liberates us. That's my view. Okay, again, I preface it by saying that's been true for me. It may not be the case for everyone else. I, I don't know. I have no way of knowing. I do have anecdotal evidence that it works for other people in this way too, but I cannot be sure. Is your forgiveness of your examiners predicated on them suffering? So that is to say, if you thought that they didn't suffer, would you still forgive them? I don't know. Good question. Good question. I mean, like I said, there are two aspects of it. First of all, 
me recognizing that they may have suffered themselves. And second, my gratitude for setting up, for participating in this experience, which gave me so much fuel that it launched me into the stratosphere. So they were participants in this, maybe motivated by something abhorrent, you know, and terrible. But the fact of the matter is they played their role very well. You're making me realize something, which is that I, so again, I don't know how much of this I'll keep in, but for, for myself with when I was 17, I would say that, oh no, 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 I forgive this person because I'm the wretched, sordid, despicable person who, who looks at other people who are successful. And I'm like, I have no mentor. I, when I went to university, like I had depression for seven years, so I skipped classes I didn't have a peer group and I would look at people who are successful and be like, yeah, well, that's because you had advantages and and I didn't. So in, in a sense, it's like a prisoner with a door locked from the inside. And I say all of this with some, well, with a large amount of saltiness and, and just because I'm trying to be blunt, but also because I'm overcompensating for my urge to sugarcoat it. And as I just lost years of my life. And so I, I would point the finger at myself. And I think part of the problem is, is that some of what was done to me, let's just put that in quotations, was not okay. But I'm not able to say that because I have to point the finger to myself. But then subconsciously, I'm still pointing the finger at someone else. And, and that's okay. Don't, don't force it. That's my advice. In other words, don't forgive prematurely because then it means short, you're trying to short-circuit something. That's my view. It, it, there, there, may, there may well be something for you to discover in this, in this um, memory, in this memory. Don't try to do it fast. What's the point of, you know, it's like Alan Watts said, you know, when you play music, it's, the purpose is not to get to the end of the piece because if that were the case, then uh, the fastest musicians would be the best. No, it's, the point is to play. And so just be op- maybe be, be open to the idea that there is more to discover. Speaking of paradoxes, Edward, like, look at this, man. Like, I get to speak with you. Like, look at what you do. Like, you get to study math, even though you're saying, like, well, initially it was an escape route. Like, I, I have the, I have a, a beautiful, I have the best life, the best wife, the best, pl- I love my car, even though it's just a Toyota like I love every aspect of my life and more and more and more. And interestingly, despite the suffering, perhaps because of the suffering, like, hey, who knows? Yeah. That, that the struggle, sorry, not suffering. I don't, I don't, I don't suffer. I struggle, struggle. Right? Sure. Whatever, whatever. Yeah. More and more I've been biking recently, Edward. So, mm-hmm. and, right. and I, there's this new feeling, a new feeling. I, I don't know how to describe it other than when I look out at the world, it's like a, it's like the feeling when you're extremely thirsty and then you take a, a gulp, but it's of mm-hmm. satisfaction and beauty. Something like being transfixed by the splendor of the world or amazement. Something I look out, I'm like, whoa. And I, I haven't seen that for my entire life, except for the past few months, like more and more and more. That's awesome. And, and I, I don't know where I was going with that now, but, but oh, what, what? What, I'm, what I'm saying is that despite all of this talk, like the, of, of, of working super, super hard, working hard, like understanding different physical theories and dealing with consciousness theories, like that, that's rattling. Like, mm. 
and and at the same time juggling editing, family obligations, so on. So, like, I, like mm. this is what an honor that I get to speak with you. Like, holy moly, you're like for years. I actually, I I didn't. I, I remember recognizing your face, and you've influenced me years ago, and I had forgotten. And now I get to speak with you. Now I get to read your book and and speak with the author. Like, what a beautiful privilege like it's the best it's the best man and say i'm sure you're like holy moly what no i get to speak with kurt well no i'm just kidding but i get i get to study the langlands program i get to make contributions that stay in math man what lives yeah well that is it's beautiful it is beautiful it is beautiful edward okay one last thing now i feel guilty because this is something that comes up is that whenever i have this feeling of wow, look how great life is. Then I think, yeah, yeah, but most other people, or at least in my mind, most other people or many other people are suffering. Who am I to feel so good? And then that impinges and it prevents me from fully appreciating a moment because I'm like, yeah, but there are people who are starving. Yeah, but there are people who can't make ends meet. And yeah, but there are people who so-and-so-and-so. So how do, do you ever struggle with that and how do you deal with that? No, of course. But uh, I don't know. I, I feel that... We cannot do it, but we have a life, a human being has limited resources. We have limited life, you know, like in terms of the longevity, you know, how many years we got. We have limited spatial dimensions and so on, and resources, energy. So the question is not to spread yourself thin. And uh, that's why I'm not so, I'm not so happy when people go on Twitter and they start venting their anger because it's actually, it means run away from your true responsibilities. It's, it's, it's cheap to go and argue and, 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 and accuse and blame on people. It's an emotional discharge. But what are you, so if you really care about this, just go to that war zone, go to that poor country and so on and do it. Do it. Action is not the same as, war, as words which are not supported by action. So, so then what's the, what's the, how to resolve what's the resolution of this the resolution is to find what you truly love and dedicate yourself to it 100 percent. and this way you will contribute in a positive way to the society and then your own you know self-recriminations and thoughts about you deserve don't deserve and so on is is, is you're blocking yourself from being fully dedicating and really impacting things it takes energy away that's how i see it that's like self-doubt it's natural i'm not i'm not saying it's not it's where i'm i'm given to sometimes to bouts of self-doubt and self-criticism and so on it's normal i think but ideally ideally i would like i consider it as something that is a waste Mm -hmm. and the way to to overcome it is to truly do what you love and and just keep going with it and look you know how successful your podcast is for instance you know it's only been around a couple of years you have so many some people such a dedicated audience and really great interviews you know i've watched a bunch of them so that's how that's what we can do when we really dedicate ourselves to something that we truly love and i think that's the that's the only way we can do as human beings what else can we do be, be aware of yourself, be aware also of the world, be aware of the suffering in the world, but also be aware that you cannot go, you cannot pretend that you are the almighty God who is going to solve everything for everybody. No, that's not how we set up. You have your mission. It's not like, also it's not like a mission which is written, which is given by somebody. I feel like it's, it happens as we go. You choose it as you are living. It's part of life. But if you're open, you don't believe it's co-created. 
Like there's a part that's innate and there's a part that you choose. It's a narrative. So maybe, who knows? I feel like all, all of this, what you describe, any such theory is a theory, is a story that we tell ourselves. And we, we are human. A very important essential part of being human is to the ability to tell stories to each other and to ourselves. By the way, this is where I love Yuval Harari. Also, he explains very clearly that he, history of the of our civilization is a history of ideas and and stories. They're mostly stories, not even ideas. Stories. We tell each other stories, and it creates this sort of market of stories, and they evolve, and they merge, and they separate, and who knows how it happens. But we also tell ourselves stories. Now, if the story uh, stories are different, so if it's if it's helping me to be the best I can be, and this is something which we can feel, right? Am I on the right path? Am I not on the right path? Kind of, kind of like a general sense. Sense. Then okay, go along with the story. Be open to changing the story at some point when it becomes more of a hindrance than something that propels you you know so what you described is a very reasonable way to to think about things but my, I th- and i've tried many other ways yes to approach to conceptualize and my feeling today is that sometimes i need it sometimes i don't sometimes i just feel you know sometimes i i i've I'm guided by something like you described, that there is this higher self and lower self and this collaboration between the two or something. Sometimes I feel that I don't need it. It changes. kind of. But what's important is not to say it's like that and that's it. You see what I mean? That would be theory of everything. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. <laughs> Death yeah. is love exposed. That's a quotation from a wise man. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Do you know who said this? You said this. On the Lex okay. Friedman podcast. Something similar, yes. Maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. Course. Death is love at its barest or at its most exposed, its most raw. When you, yes, when you experience, when you are faced with death, this is when you you face an unfiltered love, kind of, yes. Yeah, explain that, explain that, please. Well, I feel like, you know, death is something that is does not accept any spurious stuff. So, for instance, you can... When I specifically talked about the, the my experience when my father died four and a half years ago, and he, we were very close, and I was devastated by it. And I tried; I was kind of mature enough, so to speak, to ask to to ask myself to to, to say, just live through it and observe and observe what is happening, what is mm-hmm. happening here. So I was able to to see these things, which maybe if I was just completely overwhelmed by grief we wouldn't be able to see and what i saw was that there was a natural tendency to come up with some explanation of what's going on like we just discussed you know that story some story but they they could not hold those stories like they melted in the face of death mm-hmm. like face death is staring at you and any stories you throw at it to story to protect yourself so then what is it then? And then why do I feel so much pain? And then I realized that the intensity is simply my realization that my, you know, my father, well, you could say my father is gone. I will not be able to spend time with him and to 
to laugh together and to enjoy things together. But also, wh- but why does it bother me so much? Because I love him. So at the, at the root of it is love. And then I thought the reason why it is so painful is because n- normally you it we put filters because we pretend that it's two different beings communicating with each other. But ultimately, when when you're in love, and I strongly believe in this, you, you cannot love another. You always love when it is true love in the in this moment of of experiencing it, you become one. Mm, it could mm. be your your father, your your parent. It could be your friend. It could be your lover, uh, your partner. You know, but and it, this is a, a kind of a cornerstone of the Eastern tradition for me. This idea of oneness, and it sounds it has been perverted, obviously, by New Age stuff and all this kind of when it becomes it makes it a bit facile, you know, a bit too. Uh, facetious, you know, but mm-hmm. the corner, the core of idea, the core idea is precisely that, in my interpretation, is that the moment of love is the moment when a separate being ceases to exist, when the boundary melts. Whether we conceptualize it this way or not, it doesn't matter. We feel it. We feel this very strong emotion. It's a particular way of conceptualizing it, of course, but I think it's a helpful one. Because ultimately, it points out to another way of cognition, which is not tinted by the sense of a separate being, which is, to me, the root of a lot of suffering, is the idea that there is a separate being, actually. One can always argue to what extent it's real and to what extent it's a construct. Obviously, it's a very useful construct since I'm using it, you know, but it's important to know that there are other ways of experiencing life. And love, to me, is what points to it. What points to the ability to experience life without the the burden of a of an idea of there being a separate individual who is experiencing it, but something bigger, something bigger than that. And so, death is uh, one experience where one is forced. If indeed who died is somebody you deeply love, for real. I think that in this experience that that comes to the fore, that it, 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 and it's a sense of love so intense that it feels like pain. Well, Professor, I have so many questions on algebraic varieties and L functions and automorphic <laughs> sheaves, but this was an unexpected turn, and I hope to speak with you again. I appreciate you spending so much time with me. It's my pleasure. Uh, well, we talk. I, I just want to comment on this that um, we talk about what interests us. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, speaking of not architecting prior to engaging, like the Jungian <laughs> conception of what true art is, where you mm-hmm. think, versus constructing the CN Tower beforehand, the other option is you just like watch the diffusion of an ink drop, and Bohm would call that the unfoldment, and you just go where it flows. Yeah, that's what the, yeah, that's, that's what it felt, and it's it's good it's good that you, that we can do it because I think that most interesting things in some sense are the surprise so things which are not pre pre preset or kind of like premeditated, but the things which are which arise spontaneously, kind of you know, and so that is uh, that's why I really enjoyed it too. So I had a question from Richard Borchards to you. Okay. Yeah, his question was, 
what role do function fields play in higher dimensional algebraic varieties in the Languins program? Ah. <laughs> so we may as well just touch on a couple math questions. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. So, well, Richard Birch, first of all, is my colleague at UC Berkeley. He's a very brilliant mathematician. He's a Phil's, he won the Phil's medal, but also, you know, apart from that, he's, he's just really um, did some groundbreaking, really, really amazing work. On uh, He was the first one to formalize the concept of a vertex algebra, which has actually been a, a staple in my research. And he proved the moonshine conjecture and so on. So he, uh, and he's a very, very nice human being as well. So I'm kind of I'm, I'm pleased to have a question from him. The, um, what he's asking about is the following. So we just talked a little bit about the Langlands program. So the Langlands program, original formulation is for number fields, for numbers, for numerical systems like... Uh-huh. Reals, complex, and so on. That's right. But um, on the other side of it is human surfaces, which are like a sphere or a surface of a donut and so on. And so Andre Vey, in his Rosetta Stone that we discussed, he found a, a bridge between the two, which is sim- very similar. On one side, you have these numerical systems. On the other side, you have this geometry of surfaces. And the the bridge that he found is the following. You should look at, instead of looking at the surface itself, you look at functions on it. And these functions are, they're going to be what's called meromorphic functions or rational functions. So they have they have zeros and poles. That sometimes at some points they're not defined, they go to infinity. And this, this gives you what's called a function field of the Riemann surface from which you can basically recover it. And that field is very much like number field, like rational numbers. But what stands in between is when you take a so a Riemann surface is a, as a curve from the point of view of algebraic mm-hmm. geometry. It's a curve over complex numbers. But you can also so it's defined by some equations with complex coefficients, polynomial equations with complex coefficients, coefficients in the field yes, of complex yes, yes. numbers. But you can also write such equations with coefficients in other numerical systems, for example, in finite fields. So modulo prime, modulo prime, like a, a clock arithmetic uh, modulo prime numbers. And then it really becomes that the function field of that is really very much like, uh, like rational numbers or a field of rational numbers. And so this way you found a bridge between the two. So that's what is referred to as a function field case. But in Langlands program, it's about curves. So it's one dimensional geometric objects. And what Richard is asking, what about two-dimensional. Now, a Riemann surface ostensibly is two-dimensional from the point of view as a real manifold, right? So a sphere has has a longitude and altitude, no, longitude and latitude, right? Two, two coordinates. So it's, has, its dimension, its real dimension is two, but it's complex dimension because remember, complex numbers are two-dimensional over the real numbers because there is a square root of negative one. There is an independent element. So complex numbers are two-dimensional over from the perspective of real numbers. Therefore, a two-dimensional sort of real thing is one-dimensional from the perspective of complex numbers. So as a, as a complex geometric shape, it's one-dimensional. So the question is, can you extend the ideas of the Langlands program to two-dimensional objects or three-dimensional and so on? And the, unfortunately, today, with the very few, there is very little information about this, very scant. So there's a few examples where some analog exists, 
but by and large, we don't have a picture. So the answer is in the negative right now. But the, but the hope is that eventually we will be. It was just much more complex, I guess. You know, you had a chapter in your book called The Delicate Dance. I think uh-huh. it's chapter 16. doesn't matter. The point is that in it, you had a film script. You spoke about yes. you and Drinfield. Yes, right. Yeah. Why did you choose to frame it like that? Well, because I, I have been a um, cinema aficionado, you know, a film lover for many years. I also uh, co-directed and starred in a short film, <laughs> which gave me a lot of trouble. Yeah, you co-directed and starred. I co-directed, co-wrote, and starred in it. It's called Rights on Love and Math. Rights like R-I-T-E-S. Um, and also I wrote a script. I actually wrote a, a, a script for a feature film with my friend and mentor, Thomas Farber, who's a writer and a, teaches literature, creative writing at, at UC Berkeley. So we wrote a script called The Two-Body Problem about a writer and a mathematician who meet in the south of France. And uh, <laughs> they talk about their love affairs, hearts broken, and so on, and how to become, better, how to be better humans. So, I, for instance, I had a software. I had a, the uh, scriptwriting software already, and I, th- I thought that it's always good to put put it in a kind of a artistic framework, since my my job was to shake people's understanding of what mathematics is mm. like. So, for instance, there are these boring people talking to each other about some boring stuff. So I want to make it come more alive. So I, I, I was suggesting imagine imagine it as a as a as a movie, as a Netflix series. Which, by the way, you know, I, this thought came to me because I watched your on your channel on your podcast. You had a, a, a conversation, a debate between two very uh-huh. brilliant people, uh, Sabine Sabine Hassenfelder. Sabine Hassenfelder. Right? Hasenfelder and Bernardo Castro. I've never met Sabine in person, but I've followed her a little bit. And Bernardo, I have actually met. And they argued about superdeterminism. And to me, it, I, I, I watched it like a, like, a, like a great Netflix series, episode of a Netflix series. It was like the impact, in terms of like, there's so many subtleties there. There's so many layers. Uh-huh. And there's such... I could do, we could do a whole conversation of me like trying to unpack that, but I'm just trying to say I, I am lucky to have the expertise in some, to follow the discussion and to actually have my own opinions and so on, but also to observe the psychology. So to me, it was a case study in, in what we discussed earlier, how much our preferences, like psychological, metaphysical, philosophical, how much they are, how intricate, how intertwined they are with our theories, supposedly abstract theories of supposedly objective reality, how much we are driven and passionate about certain ideas, you know? It was a case study for both of them, actually. And they were, because they were so sincere about it. Interesting. You felt both were staunch in their opinion. Sorry, for the people who are watching, the link to that will be in the description, and it's the debate between Bernardo Castrop and Sabine Hassenfelder called the new theory or new superdeterminism, super something like that. It'll it, be in the description. It's fascinating because, you know, 
I don't know. I, I just want to say it's such an. It actually brought me to to read some stuff about it, and I I find it very. So in this case, the way I see it is that Sabine is very um, adamant about a particular idea that is local determinism that she wants to preserve it. And where does it come from? So of course she, I probably would deny that this is really her preference, but that's what comes across from. I have no, I have no horse in this race. Okay, I'm just looking as a, as an observer, and it's very clear that she is sometimes a little too emotional about it. Like for instance, she basically says this: people who don't understand it are idiots. Not quite paraphrasing. She, by and large, she was incredibly, you know, gracious. She was very calm and so on. But I also read some other stuff she wrote about it and saw a video. And sometimes she goes a little overboard. But also, like, I see how... So the, the way... So she wants to sacrifice this, what's called statistical independence. And Bernard was arguing that, that then science is over. Uh, I think that he's exaggerating too a little bit. So for him, obviously, mm. this statistical independence is dear and local determinism is not. You see, but I... I but then neither of them would actually come out and say, look, this is what I hold dear to me. And that's why I build a theory around it. Yes. They wouldn't say that. They would say, but of course you can't do that because then science would be finished or something. Both of them, kind of. Because, and this is where I feel, this is where we can make one more step as a community where we really would advance as, as scientists and human beings is when we will admit to ourselves to what extent we are motivated by dearly held principles. Like, why does Sabine care about local determinism so much? I'm asking for a friend, you know, like maybe if she <laughs> finds out, if she finds out, maybe she learns something about herself. I can tell you why I don't care about it, for instance. Because I think the world is inherently indeterministic. In my experience, it's not. But also for me, actually, this is not so essential. What this Bell's experiment, the entanglement is a is not a big deal. What is a big deal in quantum mechanics is non-commutativity. That the observables, familiar observables like coordinate, momentum, and so on, which in classical physics they commute with each other. They're like numbers or functions. They become non-commutative. That's why they have to be realized as accurate sentiment on the Hilbert space. And this non-commutativity is an absolutely essential phenomenon. Now, mind you, the, the commutator between, say, momentum operator and coordinate operator is very small. It's proportional to the Planck constant. So classical physics, therefore, can be thought of as a limit of quantum when the Planck constant goes to zero. Likewise, um, Newtonian mechanics can be thought of as a limit of Einstein's special relativity when the speed of light goes to infinity. And likewise, in general relativity, we have curved space-time. And it's, our traditional view was that we live in, in the Euclidean space, which has no curvature. So there are three parameters, non-zero parameters, that were introduced in the 20th century. The Planck constant, which makes the world non-commutative. And to me, I feel that it is a very essential thing, and it is fundamental. And if you accept that, I don't think superdeterminism can save you. Like, I have not, not really studied this. Even if you drop um, statistical independence and so on, there will be phenomena which will not, in principle, you cannot describe by classical physics, because classical physics is commutative. 
So you're trying to fit non-commutative world into commutative world. I don't think it's possible, but I'm not 100% sure. To me, it's a feature, not a bug. Likewise, the fact that the speed of light is finite and it's the same to all observers, which is the feature of special relativity. It's a special thing. It's not something you fight. My question would be, how much do we want to sacrifice of the scientific disco- of the things we have discovered in 20th century to accommodate our belief systems? For instance, let's suppose I am uh, interested in local preservation of local determinism. So then I'm willing to postulate that my experimental apparatus somehow magically behaves and we're in a... St- mm-hmm. Now, Bernardo says, okay, it's weird, it's impossible. That's, I disagree. Quantum mechanics is weird too. <laughs> you know, Niels Bohr famously said to somebody, your theory is undoubtedly crazy. The question is whether it's crazy enough to... Re-. So the fact that it's weird to me doesn't mean it's wrong. So I keep open mind. It may well be that superdeterminism will become a prevalent uh, scientific theory in the next few years. Who knows? I would not be surprised. To argue that it's impossible because it's weird is disingenuous. You know, it's disingenuous. For me, the point is not that. The point is that, let's admit why this is put at the forefront of a theory. It's because of a preference. You know, there is this Samuelson, the great economist, had this theory called revealed preference in economics. That sometimes observing agents' behavior, you can actually find out what their preferences are. That's called revealed preference. To me, it's a revealed preference. So then my question is, okay, so suppose you have a preference for um, preservation of uh, local determinism, and you're willing to sacrifice this, this, and this. Okay, suppose you have a preference for classical Newtonian mechanics. How much are you willing to sacrifice to pretend that Einstein's relativity can be accommodated by experimental apparatus? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, we know that what happens, one of the predictions of special relativity is that as you move faster, time go, slows down and distances shrink, right? How much are you willing to ascribe it to some kind of conspiracy between um detectors that you use in your, your experimental apparatus. Like, I don't think anybody asks superdeterminists this question. Like, would you be willing also to do that? And if not, why not? Also, Einstein's general relativity says there's curvature. Curvature, curvature of space-time yeah. is, is the signature of gravity. Suppose you are an adherent of Euclidean geometry and you don't believe it's true because when I look outside of my window, I don't see any curvature. Well, except curvature of the Earth, but I talk about the curvature of space-time. How far are you willing to go to preserve zero curvature in your theory by ascribing different absurd phenomena? For instance, Eddington discovered that, you know, famously in 1919, Arthur Eddington's expedition discovered that the ray of light bends around the massive star. Let's suppose you... So and this is considered as an experimental verification of Einstein's general relativity. The fact that space-time is curved around massive bodies emitting gravitation, gravitational force. How, let's suppose that you like Euclidean geometry and you are adamant that the world is Euclidean, no curvature. Are you willing to then say that your experiment explain away all this all this experimental data by saying that? 
Uh, it's just uh, the, 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 we, we should look deeper into how these measuring devices are set up. Maybe there is some weird communication between them, which we're not aware of, which creates this illusion. Now, I think we have to be consistent. So if you say, yes, in principle, you could do that, you could do that. And it's kind of, on, we are kind of like in the same game here because for, for us, superdeterminism is very essential to believe that there is local determinism. We are willing to sacrifice other aspects of our theory to accommodate this. Then it's an it's a different story. But ask these questions to also see maybe to, to what extent you are investing yourself and your preferences into your theory. Something you may actually accuse others, for example. For example, she has been extremely, Sabine Hosenfelder, extremely helpful in unraveling sort of this uh, fallacy of the string theory and the fact that practitioners of string theory yeah. are still not willing to admit the failure of their enterprise. She ha- Sabine has been extremely positive, in my opinion, in this. She wrote a whole book called Lost in Math, saying that we, we are led astray by our preferences for what we consider beauty and so on. But can we also be led astray by our preferences for uh, certain philosophy or metaphysics? And it's always nice, easy to say, see it in other people. Can we see it in ourselves that we're actually doing something very similar? Now, then the next question is, do I see it in me too? Because I'm now saying, I'm now saying, I'm not criticizing actually. I'm trying to explain why to me it was like an amazing uh, Netflix movie. Unfortunately, you need to have some background to understand but if you do, it is an incredible case study in how we being, are being human. And, and it's normal. But it shows to me also, it helps me. It's almost, I want to say thank you so much for showing this to me so clearly. It's informative about yourself. Yes, because I'm also, and by the way, it extends beyond science. Uh, how often, you know, do I find myself in my life, in my personal life, adhering to certain ideas, knowing full well that there is no proof for them, but it's just like how I want it to be. And then suffering as a result. Mm. And to see in a microcosm, this process, how we fool ourselves, how easy it is for us to fool ourselves. You know? Also, for instance, she goes like, I really want to work on this because I am alarmed by the fact that the, the, the collapse of the wave function happens faster than the speed of light. But excuse me, quantum mechanics contradicts special relativity. Everybody knows this. That's mm. the whole point. That's why we have the next level theory, which is called quantum field theory. I have not yet seen any superdeterminism addressing local determinism in the framework of quantum field theory. They tried to do it in the framework of quantum mechanics, and then they... Okay, so this has been a bit too harsh on Sabine. So to be fair now, what would you say about Bernardo? No, he was he was a bit harsh on her. That's what I would say. But I'm just saying, like, Schrodinger equation is non-relativistic. It has a first-time derivative, second-order, first-order time derivative, second-order coordinate, space derivatives. So it is not relativistic. So therefore to say that the collapse of the wave function is somehow alarming to us, but how about Schrodinger equation? It's also non-relativistic. You see what I'm saying? But it's such a subtle point that it is lost because like, most people don't really pay attention to this. I'm trying to say, I 
I feel it. I am like this too. I'm not trying to criticize. You know Richard Hamming? Yeah, yeah. He said something which jives completely with what you're saying. Something I wrote down, but I'm going to paraphrase. It's that we tend to think that we arrive at our interpretations of quantum mechanics. But he said, you start with God, even as a secular person. And then you see which interpretation is most consistent with that. I think, that, look, it's the, beautiful, the beautiful thing, the, to me, it's like, my, my, my approach is, it's all beautiful. It's all beautiful. I loved seeing both of them. And I wouldn't change a thing. And I don't want them to change, except for one little thing. Ask ourselves, each of us, ask ourselves, what is driving us really here? And is it really just scientific principles or there is some preference in it? And it's a very small thing. It's, it's not no shame in having a preference. There's no shame in it. Of course, we, I do. I do. Just be aware of it. Because if, that's what leads us astray, I think, is not being aware. That's all. But I think the, the idea is very interesting. It is worth exploring. It is not fair to say that you shouldn't explore because it sounds crazy or whatever. You know, like it's weird. Okay, yeah. quantum mechanics is weird. So <laughs> also Bernardo said something I disagree. He's like, so basically you're saying that the moon depends, what you see in the moon depends on how you set up your apparatus, uh, your detector. But we know that in quantum mechanics, the result depends on how you set up your apparatus. If you do a mm -hmm. double slit experiment without detectors, you will see the interference pattern. If you do it with a detector, you will see particles behavior. So it's not, it's not an argument either. You see what I mean? We are all in, we are in the jungle. You know, we are in the jungle. We're trying to find our way. Let's cooperate. Let's cooperate and let's understand that we all want the same thing. We want to, the best theory, the most beautiful theory, the most interesting theory, the one which fits with experiment. On this path, on this journey, we are informed by many things which are personal and nothing wrong with it. Just accept it. And this will give us maybe new insights. Over email, you mentioned you wanted to speak about string theory or the Hans Bethe onset. So string theory is a good example of where people have gone astray. And Sabina has been one of the people that called them on this correctly, in my opinion. Was this the example you were thinking of earlier when you had said, you can recapitulate and not me? Yeah, so the theory of a theory of everything, you know, it's like this idea that I was recently invited to a conference, a string theory conference, and I, and it was a very interesting experience for me um, uh, to not just look at it abstractly, but to actually interact with people who are consider themselves string theorists, and I saw that. Um, it's not very healthy kind of situation where it's still not been acknowledged by a bit too much hubris not hubris it's the, I think it's more like unwillingness to accept responsibility which is again totally human you know like it's hard when was the last time I accepted responsibility so maybe I will take start with myself. I am not a string theorist. I've never been string, a string theorist. But I have collaborated with Edward Witten, whom I greatly respect. And yes, I found it over the years very 
how useful to drop the names and say, I calibrate with Witten. You know, I know something about string theory because when I talk to my non-science friends. So also in love and math, I talk about string theory, but I'm kind of trying to be diplomatic about it. That it's great for mathematics and physically it hasn't quite worked, but maybe. The fact of the matter is that the original promise of string theory, which was to describe this universe by using a theory which starts out in 10 dimensions of space-time, has not worked out. And nobody knows how in principle it could work. And it's already been a situation for at least 10 years. Yet, this is not acknowledged. And how can you move forward and achieve greatness if you're still pretending that your original program is somehow, if you're not acknowledging that your original program failed? It's just a kind of like a simple question human at the human level, not even scientific level. I did not see that. And I saw young people, very brilliant, but confused because their elders are not giving them proper guidance. That's, that's my impression. I may be wrong. I may be completely off base here. But I sensed that they, they're already not doing string theory proper. So the, very few talks were about string theory actually proper. And um, people work, the kind of stuff people work on that I discussed, you know, it's quantum field theory more generally, or uh, maybe study of black holes and stuff like that. But it's not the original promise was we will find Kalabi Yao manifold on which six dimensional, which will do away with the six dimensions, and then we will get the physics of this four dimensional universe. It has not worked out, and nobody knows how to do it apart from some ideas of what's called landscape, this multiverse, and so on, which I think a lot of people find problematic. Right? So, so this to me is an example of how, how, again, our personal interferes with the project, which is of science. Unwillingness to, to accept reality of it. You know, it doesn't mean that the people should be, it's not, I'm not saying, it, nobody needs to be punished. No needs to be punished. I understand. So what is a string theorist to do when you say acknowledge? What is the goal? Is it Ed Witten writes an article? Is it he goes on a podium? Is it he sends an email out? And then what happens afterward? What does a string theorist do after one spends four decades, five decades studying it and then says this wasn't fruitful? But then are they going to continue studying it for the next decade? I, I'll tell you what not to do, okay? How about this? Let me start with that simple thing. So this I'm actually, this was a post that, uh, not even wrong, blog by Peter Voigt. Peter Voigt was one of the one of the early critics. He's coming on the podcast in a couple of weeks, oh, yeah? actually. Yeah, yeah. No, he's great. He's great. Yeah, he's yeah. great. And he was very brave because I do remember what happened. He was one of the lone voices. He and uh, Lee Smolin at the time were mm -hmm. basically the only voices. Also, and they were ostracized. They were ostracized. They were criticized. Like they were stupid. They didn't understand. You know. Mm -hmm. And for instance, how about an How about an apology, or at least acknowledgement? Okay, so maybe he was not so stupid after all, Peter Void. 
or Lee Smolin. Maybe actually they were saying something which was meaningful. How about that? But also, like, I'm looking here. So in, in um, August of 19, there was, so there is a video discussion about supergravity and so on. And there's a quote here. So I haven't actually watched the video, but I, I trust that Peter Boyd transcribed it correctly. Andy Strominger, who is a Harvard professor uh, and one of the leaders of string theory, a man I greatly respect, of course, he's a great scientist. Here's what he said. I think that the idea that people were excited about back in 1985 was really a small thing. That's the idea of describing the physics of this universe from string theory. So he says, it was really a small thing. Yeah. You know, to kind of complete a table that you put down at the beginning of the spectrum of particles. Who cares about that, right? So except how much resources were taken to fulfill, to fulfill this promise, right? That was a big promise. And that was the idea on the, because of which Think theories used to say it's the only game in town. If you want to do theoretical physics, you better come to us because nobody else is doing anything interesting, right? So now in 2019, we hear from one of the leaders. I think that this idea was actually a really small thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. We didn't do that. We didn't predict new things that were going to be measured at the Large Adron Collider. But what has happened is so much more exciting than our original vision. We are getting little hints of a radical new view of the nature of space and time, in which it really just is an approximate concept emerging from something deeper that is really, really more exciting. Okay. So, in other words, so first of all, correct, the, the beautiful ideas came out of string theory. But that was not the original promise of string theory. The original promise was to describe the physics of this universe, unify all forces of nature, the three forces, electromagnetic, strong and weak, described by the standard model and the quantum theory of gravity. This has not happened. And now we hear that actually it was not such a big deal, it was such a big thing. We've learned so much more. It's like, you know, I tried to think of a good analogy. Mm -hmm. It's like, remember Moses? Mm. He took uh, uh, Isra Israelites out of Egypt, mm -hmm. and he, pro he told them that he will lead them to the promised land. Yes. So imagine Moses, Moses after 40 years of wandering in the desert, you would say, you know, guys, you know, this idea of a promised land is <laughs> really not such a big thing. Look how much we've learned. We've learned about the desert. We've learned so much about the sand. That's a great analogy. Who cares about the promised land? What do you think would people say to him? And yet here we are. It's a, you know, this is what, this is called, by the way, people call, you, you mentioned this expression, moving the goalposts. This is not moving goalposts. This is going to a different stadium. It's starting to play a different game. Like you used to play soccer at one stadium. Then you go to another stadium, you start playing baseball, and you say, no, we are playing soccer. We're still playing soccer. Yes, yes, yes. Stating that your original goal is not meaningful. It did not work out. It did not work out. How about just starting with that? It did not work out. Unequivocally, not by saying in the next 10 years. You know, I, I, I saw a great video. I don't know if you know this channel. Um, 
she's called it's um angela collier you know she mm-hmm. she has a very nice uh, youtube channel and yes, she yes, did yes. a video about string theory and i really enjoyed it she uh-huh. kind of and one of the things that she kept saying like she traced the evolution 90s to 2000s and so on and each time she's like just wait another 10 years just yes. wait another 10 years that's the attitude even today i am sorry to say you know what how do if a young person who uh, is in the subject it's still called string theory okay you have go to conference in string theory and maybe 20 percent of talks are about string theory the rest is about other things people are already doing other things it's like you know in the soviet union when i was growing up before gorbachev like 80s early 80s everybody already did not believe in the ideology they did their own thing but people were still trapped because the official ideology, the official party line is this. So you have to somehow accommodate it, you know? So for instance, if you work in the history of social science, you always start a preface every article you write with the great comrade Lenin said this, you know, things like that. What a liberation it is when you don't have to do it anymore. What a... <sighs> Wait, so in this analogy, what would be the equivalent of praising Lenin or Marx? Because when you go to a string conference, it's not like you're saying, hey, string theory is great, now here's my talk. The string theory somehow is still true. It's still trying to search, it's still trying to um, describe this universe. It's not because, well, there are some people who are trying, but there's so many, at least say that it did not work out the way we expected. Okay, people thought, and I also understand to be carried away as a human being. It's not, it's natural. The, the theory is beautiful, and it I have to say also uh, very strongly that it has impacted mathematics and in incredible in incredibly powerful ways. For instance, what Stromulus talks about is real. Is real the idea of emergence of space time, and that different space times can appear as at different limits of the same theory, like mirror symmetry stuff like that. Incredibly powerful. Okay, but Yes, this came up. But what about your original promise? What about your original promise? The idea was that you find what the string theory is only defined, super string theory, in 10 dimensions of space-time. You have to find six dimensions, which the extra, because what we observe is four dimensions of space-time. So the idea was we will find the, color, the right manifold, the right shape on which to compactify. Reasonable, reasonable. The, what turned out? What, it, what turned out is that there are too many choices. But there is more. Actually, this one. This one question is: that you cannot pin it down. It's worse because actually, dynamically, it doesn't stay static. It changes also the Calabiyao because there are modular space of Calabiyao. It's not rigid. Many of them are not. So it's moving and it becomes singular and nobody knows what to do with this. So the, 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 in other words, the magnitude of the, prob- of the problem, yes, it, it's possible that you, somebody can solve it. And I'm not saying they should not work on it. Of course, work on it. Uh-huh. But they shouldn't deride other attempts? But they were extremely heavy-handed. There's no question. Like in the same blog of Peter Boyd, I suggest people to read a testimony from David E. Kaplan. He gave an interview. It says, post from October 22. 
It's a devastating, devastating testimony of someone who was not a string theorist in the heyday of string theory and what he felt about it. How many others felt the same way? Not to acknowledge it, not to admit that this would happen. And, and the original promise did not pan out. Is something that holds people back, in my opinion. They have to be free. You have to liberate it from this weight. And the only people who can do it are the leaders of the theory. And it doesn't take much. It just opened the door a little bit for the possibility that our original project did not work out. Let's see what we can make out of what we, what, what we have. How do you think Ed Witten would respond if he heard what you said? You've collaborated with him. You know you're part yeah. of that community or adjacent to that community. I'm adjacent and I've been paying lip service to this community. I have to admit. So uh, see, in the interest of following my own admonition of like, what's my, what is Edward's, and meaning Edward Frankel, not Edward Witten. What is Edward Frankel's uh, involvement? I was never a think theorist, but I did, I paid the lip service because it was convenient to me. It was nice for me to feel that I am uh, collaborating with such great physicists. That I would uh, write in love and math that, yeah, who knows? Maybe they will find this collab. Yeah, when I knew full well that it, it seems way more. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't say it in this in putting these words, but I was kind of giving the validity, even in principle, kind of paying lip service to it. Okay, so maybe not not yet, but. The, as as uh, this uh, woman who has Angela, you know, said, in the next, wait, you wait in the next ten years. So I was kind of lip, giving lip service to it. You see, that's my contribution, and which I see now was unhelpful. And I am grateful that there were people like Peter Boyd and Lee Smolin and Sabine uh, Hersenfelder, yeah, as well who were principled about it. Eric Weinstein as well. Eric Weinstein, yes, yes, absolutely. Eric Weinstein, who said this for many years. They were had a principled approach to it. And, you know, it's always like this, because you don't want to say, because you don't want to offend anybody. I understand. But at some point, you ask, what is the interest of the community as opposed to the interest of a single human being or a few single, a few individuals? Yeah. How do you think the leaders would react? To what you just said. Let's 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 find out. Forward this to Ed. Look, I look. I respect. I want to say I respect all all the people. I just want to say I respect, and I think they're brilliant. uh, There's no question, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And I am honored that I'm honored to have collaborated with Witten. No, no doubt about it. We're talking here about not so much about science involved, but a way hum, a human element. Somehow it became the theme of our conversation. So I kind of felt yes. that this would be appropriate, appropriate because also it's one theory which purported to, which sold itself as a theory of everything. Yeah, you know. And so now, forty years later, after forty years wandering in the desert, we hear that actually this promised land is not a big deal. That's not how you deal with this. That's not. We've seen that happen in history. It is detrimental. It puts a burden on young people who are trapped in this narrative. Even if, even if they're already doing stuff which is outside of the purview of, of string theory. But it would be much more help, healthy, in my opinion, in my opinion only. In my opinion, having interacted 
This is a recent opinion of yours now because you've given this talk at the Strings Conference? I have not spoken about this publicly other than I, I tweeted a little bit about it. I was at the conference. I was invited to give a challenge talk about mathematical development. Math, and I put a lot of effort into it. I put a lot of effort into it. I was very sincere. And I went there with an open mind. What I saw and experienced during this week, five days at this conference, was what led me to reconsider my position. Hmm. And led me to speak about it now, what, say what I have just said. Because on the one hand, I saw brilliant young minds. Yes. On the other hand, I saw the leaders. And no hint from the leaders that somehow maybe we need to rebrand or pivot or evolve, you know? Other yes. than obfuscation. They didn't say that. And then I looked, I started researching what other, so this is the other quotes I found. I find it not very convincing. Does this strike a nerve with you? Because you also see a parallel with what happened to you when you were 16, which is this older generation leading astray the younger one. No, or no, like it, that, that's too loose of an analogy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you make this connection. No, of course it is. Of course. But because I put myself in the position of these young people. So, you know what I mean? So, yes, of course. But this only proves. I'm not saying that makes it irrelevant or that impacts yeah, yeah. the power of but it. But see, I am aware. I am aware. I, I'm aware that my sensitivity of this, that I care. You know, like other people maybe wouldn't care. So, okay, you invite to some conference, you go and speak, and okay, you feel some of that energy, so to speak, you know? But okay, it's not your job, so just go and do your thing. Yet, I somehow feel compelled to, 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 to say this, right? Why? I know why. I'm sensitive to this thing. And so you're also able to observe it, much like people who advocate for breast cancer research, maybe someone who was close to them was affected. doesn't mean breast cancer, you shouldn't invest in it. Just because you have a personal motivation. No, no, I'm able to see it. I'm able to feel it. Now, before we go, something else that you mentioned on the Lex program, and you didn't say that it was a large problem in math, but the problem of sometimes not giving credit where credit is due. And you've seen this happen a couple of times. And you mentioned that in other fields, there's some unset ethical rules, but in math, there isn't, or maybe in physics. Do you mind expounding on that? Well, it's again integrity and like you know, but it's it's a human community. So this is the thing. This is the thing which I think is 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 at, at the root of it. Is we like to think uh, that we are this impartial arbiters of pure science and that we're driven by purely by the interest of science. And I have I have no doubt that we are we 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 would like to we aspire to be like that. To what extent we actually can is not clear to me by observing myself, first of all. And so my suggestion is that it's like, you know, Aldous Huxley talked about the idea about power, that you, we have to have restrictions on power. And um, we gave an interview to... Um, CBS is a beautiful video. And the interviewer, Mike Wallace, is a great journalist, 
it's really fantastic. Like he's smoking a cigarette, you know, it's like in the, 50, in the 50s. And he says, why? Why do we have to put? He says, because the whole point is that power is dangerous. It's because people can succumb to the temptation of power. That's why you have to restrict it. That's the whole point. Because the idea that somehow an unrestricted power can be good for anyone has been repudiated and disproved by centuries and millennia of human history. And it's the same, it's the same, I think, with the idea of, you know, that somehow my personal preferences are not involved in what I do in science. Today we have discussed several examples of which seem to suggest that this is not so, or it's not so simple. It's it's much more subtle somehow than that, you see? And so I think that we will not get to the next level of our evolution. Because also people say, okay, who cares the string theory? How many people involved? Hundreds, maybe a few thousand. But it's like canary, it's a canary in a coal mine, in my opinion. We are the vanguard. We scientists, we are the vanguard. Uh, First of all, because- You think it bleeds out into the public? Yes. Because people unconsciously, they feel it. And actually, Angela Collier, she makes this point. She actually says people got felt that they were lied to with string theory, and now they are fed up with physics. They don't want, they said, you lied to us. And I think, okay, I think it's maybe a little hard, too harsh, but she definitely has a point. So for instance, then, people will not be so interested in the developments of theoretical physics, maybe for the next decade or something, as because they got burned. They feel that they were lied. And a lot of these things, people feel it, even if you, they don't know how to verbalize it. They feel it, you see. So if we don't get our house in order, and, and when I say my, our house, I don't mean string theory. I mean science in general. We also, the other side, the flip side of it, is these people, so-called AI practitioners, who are feeding lies to people, telling them that AI is already here and you, you should pray to the, our AI overlords that mm-hmm. they will not destroy you. Stuff like that, you know? In each of these instances, what I think will help us to go to the next level and to do the job that we're supposed to do. Which is? Is to realize how much our personal psychology, our personal aesthetic, uh, metaphysical, philosophical preferences, how much they are intertwined with what we do as scientists. Just acknowledge that and then use it as a starting point for self-inquiry and self to raise your self-awareness. The same goes with the uh, attributions and papers and so on. And sometimes much lesser, lesser issue, in my opinion. For instance, if you have a subject where the leaders of the subject still cannot acknowledge that mistakes were made, you know, that mistakes were made, lessons were learned, let's move on with this understanding. Then... Okay, so then the question of attribution as a song is kind of a lesser point. But the source, I think, is the same. It's self-awareness a lack or lack of. And take resp- taking responsibility, obviously. Before we close, for me to take responsibility for a lack of attribution on my part. Unintentional, but it was still a lack of attribution. I did this video on quantum gravity, the controversial history of quantum gravity's connection to anti-gravity. I didn't credit Eric Weinstein in the video itself because I didn't use him as a source directly. I used other people like David Kaiser and a few others as sources. And I didn't know that some of the people that I had used as sources 
used Erica's sources and didn't credit him. And so mm. I just feel bad about that. And so Eric, if you're watching, like, unfortunately, YouTube doesn't allow you to extend a video, but I can change the. Well, you could put a comment. You could put a comment. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I did put a comment, and I, and I'm, I'm leaving this, and I apologize. And so, see, that's what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. This is, I admire, you know, I admire, admire you for this, for accepting responsibility. It's much easier to, you know, the alternative is to find excuses. Yeah, but yes, he was involved, but that somehow these other people did not quote him. So it's not my fault. You see, this, this is a difference. And you, you're not going, you're not going down that road. And thank you for that. Because, you know, that's how we change it, because we change our own. Well, thank you, because you inspired me, honestly, in many ways, not only through this conversation, but others that I've seen of you, like on Lex's and also in this book. Oh, thank you, Kurt. Thank you. Appreciate me it. overcoming my embarrassment of, like, I find myself being begrudging, if I'm being honest, because there are some other podcasters who have large names who have helped them and they're tweeting about them. And I don't have any of that. And we, we can all take, we can all exhale, right? Because something is weighing on us when there is something which is not true it's weighing on us on and when that simple thing of just acknowledging is such a breath of fresh air that we can all take a breath exhale and move on that's all yeah well again man oh man what a conversation <laughs> thank you thank you okay i think this is the second time one hour apart that i said all right let's end it <laughs> That just shows you what an engrossing, well, how engrossing the topics are and how fun this was. Thank you. A lot of interesting stuff. So thank you for, for the great, I really enjoyed it. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. It's almost three hours, over three hour podcast. Thank you for sticking all the way to the end. Hope you enjoyed it. I think you have because you're still here. I want to recommend a couple videos, a couple podcasts from Theories of Everything. If you liked this podcast, you'll like the ones that I'm about to recommend. But I'd also like to acknowledge a comment. Every episode from now on, or at least every other episode, I'm going to highlight one of your comments. And the reason is that I don't know if you're like me, but I love talking about these subjects. I love dealing with these subjects, but it's not like we have, at least for me, many people in my personal life to speak to about it. So in a sense, it's just relegated to speaking to this screen or conversing with people over text. And many people take the time to write detailed comments, which I love because I read almost every single comment and I would like to encourage. This comment comes from user Bijou with the pseudonym Acronon Master. And it's on the Carlo Rovelli clip called There's No Wave Function of the Universe that will be linked in the description. Bijou says, one way of viewing quantum mechanics is as a measurement theory. To measure the universe, you really have to be outside the universe. So yes, in that sense, you could have a wave function of the universe, but it would do you no good. By definition, if you're external and conducting measurements, you'd be interacting with the system. So you'd not be truly separate from the system. You'd be at least coupled to it by whatever means you have for making the measurement. So in that sense, there could not literally be a the universe, quote unquote. I do like aspects of relational quantum mechanics. The trouble is, RQM is like the mother of all bootstraps, something in brackets, Rovelli's God, and I know he considers himself atheistic, which is not a scientific stance, so whatever, has to be absolute for everything else to gauge off of, so to speak. Okay, you can read the rest of the comment by going to that video. You'll see, and I didn't plan this, that there's even a reference to the interpretations of quantum mechanics having to do with our conception of God or even the lack of God 
and reasoning backward from these prejudicial axioms rather than what we think of, which is, hey, I'm this rational being. I'm going to reason forward to my interpretation or to my conclusions. Now, if you liked this episode, then you'll enjoy the Bernardo Castrop solo episode. That's somewhere on screen here, and it'll also be in the description, as well as the Sabina Hassenfelder interview with Bernardo Castrop, where they talk about superdeterminism. Clip that was just mentioned with Carlo Orvelli will also be in the description. And the clip with Neil deGrasse Tyson that was alluded to about philosophy is quote-unquote useless, or that philosophy is little to contribute to modern-day physics and mathematics. Also, because Richard Borchards asked a question, you may not know this, but Richard Borchards was interviewed twice on Theories of Everything. Part one and part two are linked in the description as well. Thank you so much for your viewership, and I'm glad, or at least I hope, that you enjoyed this episode. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything, where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in Theories of Everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, Toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.